As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to episode 218 with my guest, Jensen Karp. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. And I'm not a therapist. I am a jackass that tells dick jokes. Uh... Hey, want to uh, send off some fireworks? Today is our four-year anniversary, and uh, I want to thank you guys so much for helping to keep this thing going, especially the people that uh, donate either money or time and energy to uh, help and keep the podcast going. It's, it means a lot to me. Um, I want to kick things off with a struggle in a sentence. This was filled out by Whitney. And about her anxiety, she writes, uh, I am juggling bombs, and if I drop one, it will explode. Also, I am not a good juggler. <laughs> Love that. Um, also, uh, update on uh, the, the uh, depression that I've been experiencing lately from going off Abilify. It's getting better, bit by bit. I've been going to the gym more frequently, and that's helping a little bit, but I think just the longer I'm off that that drug the 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 better it's it's been and thank you for your your emails of uh, support and uh, kindness um whitney writes about her migraines if you think i'm lazy consider that i have the equivalent of a part-time job of having a migraine about 20 hours a week spent in a dark room in pain now does it make sense why i didn't do all my dishes or get more work done man i that is one thing i am grateful I do not have to experience his migraines. That seems, it really seems like a uh, a handful. This is a struggle in a sentence survey, and this is filled out. Oh, by the way, if uh, you're new to the show, uh, these surveys, you can fill them out uh, by going to the website, which is mentalpod.com. And you can also browse and see how other people have filled uh, theirs out. It can be uh, pretty eye-opening. Uh, this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Ups and Downs, and um about his OCD, he writes, people always think OCD means being obsessed with keeping clean, but my messes are carefully arranged systems that keep me feeling secure. I've gotten into big fights with my wife 
over throwing an empty toilet paper tube I was not yet ready to part with. Um, about his uh, com- other compulsive behaviors, he write, writes, I went through one period where I could not stop jerking my head and making huffing slash barking noises. It terrified my wife, and I felt like an android with a glitch or a pinball machine with a tilt sign flashing. And then a snapshot from his life, he writes, I have so many supportive friends that I know see me as a wonderful and entertaining, very cheerful person, but they have no idea how many times I will slip into a dark room like a supply closet at work, my head resting on an overturned bucket on the floor as I quiver with fear, only to sneak back out 15 to 20 minutes later and return to everyone full of jokes and fascinating conversation. Thank you. That's, that is quite a picture you paint. Thank you for that. Um, this is the same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself mostly paralyzed about his depression. He writes, there's not really a reason to leave the apartment today, so why do it? I so relate to that one. About his anxiety, he writes, I'm not too stupid to follow simple instructions. I'm just too busy obsessing over your opinion of me to listen well. Relate to that one. About his love addiction, he writes, I'm just going to go ahead and light up this relationship with the smoldering butt of the last one. I chain smoke women to the filter every time. This guy could be a writer. Um, and a snapshot from his life, he writes, Audiobooks and podcasts are like my friends. The first thing I do after jacking off in the morning is put on some form of spoken word audio content. Also, the last thing I do before jacking off at night and going to bed, I try not to listen to your show right before or right after jacking off for reasons that probably don't need explaining. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So... <laughs> <laughs> so... That is when I first felt love. Like, I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, This intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrendered. I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing. I'm here with Jensen Karp, who uh, our paths crossed about a... uh, about a month ago, it's had, right. had a nice, uh, nice cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah, a little local local coffee place, and I got to hear some of your story. And I was like, we should definitely, we should definitely record this. Um, that's a good feeling because it was it was uh, we talked about a lot of things I had never said to a stranger. I'd only said to like people I've dated or my family, and I was like, what if there was a small part of me that was like, what if I say it, and it and it doesn't. Equal any. What if it just it just goes in the night, which could be good too. You know, there was sort of a weird world where I was like, I wonder if if he says it's interesting to him, that's good because I feel like I have something to say that's important. But if it's not important, that's also kind of nice to hear. <laughs> it was like <laughs> it could have went either way, and I would have felt very nice about it. I don't well, know. That's a great attitude. Yeah, that's a really great attitude. <laughs> um, 
you're somebody who's difficult to describe because you have got so many irons and so many fires. Uh, you were uh, a rapper starting yeah. when you were what twelve years old? Yeah, I was. Uh, I rap was always my passion growing up, and and uh, fate had it that I was sort of founded as a rapper at a young age. And had two sort of incarnations, one at 12 and then one at 19 where I was signed and attempted a career. Both went in very strange ways and, and went pretty deep into it. Uh, but I'd released an album when I was about 20, 21. I recorded with Kanye West and the Black Eyed Peas and Maya and Red Man and Fabulous and all these things looking like an accountant uh, the entire time. And yeah, and what name uh, when you it was Hot Carl when yeah. you were a twelve year old? Oh no, when I was twelve, uh, I didn't know what a Hot Carl was. I oh. went by, I went by Younger MC, which was like a playoff of Young MC. I was supposed to be younger. Okay. It's not my best bit. Uh, and then to further the bad name career I had, I was Hot Carl, which is code for pooping on someone's chest, which was a rap battle thing. It was like you know you shit on that guy, and then I took Hot Carl because of that. What's the difference between a Hot Carl and a Cleveland Steamer? I believe a I've Cleveland never, Steamers the shower hours on and you close the door or I something? think it's just in the way you do it yeah oh, I think there's okay. like saran wrap in one of them and not, it's just like I never and and the reason I took that name was just happenstance I, I entered this radio contest and they said what's your name and I always joked around that hot car would be a funny name because you shit on people in battling and da, da, da. and I took it and had I known it was going to be you know like this yeah. thing that would forever hold me to it I don't think I would have picked a name about pooping on someone's chest <laughs> <laughs> I would have I would have avoided it we were doing an episode of uh, dinner and a movie one year, and a lot of times when it get when it would get towards the end of the day, we'd start to get tired, and so we would get really blue to make each other laugh sure. to keep our energy That's up. The room and to, and to make the crew laugh. Yeah. You know, we loved making the crew laugh, and so um, Claude, uh, one of the one of my co-hosts, uh, said something about Uncle something or other, and. And I said, uh, oh, I think I know his cousin, uh, Hot Carl or, or <laughs> Cleveland Steamer sure. or something like that. And the producer laughed, but she didn't know. She the just thought it was just a wacky name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she doesn't edit it out. Oh, no. And it got on air. And it was during a Verizon ad. <laughs> Verizon was on that sec that segment. <laughs> That's great. So the guy who is in charge of the account at Verizon is watching it. 24 hours he's watching the the tape, dailies yeah the tape. sure yeah Be 24 hours just to approve it before it goes live yeah and he's just he told me the story he said you know i'm just sitting in the, the desk with my feet up yeah. you know eating a sandwich and all of a sudden <laughs> he hears yeah. that spit take i'm sure all of a sudden everybody's on the phone with everybody the uh. heads of the network and i get cc'd on this email with a paste from the internet a cut and paste of what a hot, urban dictionary what a hot carl is yeah I, I, that was one of my my real uh, successes was I was added as a definition on Urban Dictionary. So there's like poop on chest, blah, blah, blah. An MC from the San Fernando Valley was like the third that's... one. And I was like, I'll retire now. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, that's good enough for me. And when I'd meet people, they'd be like, his name's Hawk Carl. Some people would be like, oh, nice to meet you or, you know, Carl or whatever. And then every once in a while, someone would go, really? You know, and I'm like, oh, that person knows what it is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was always, uh, had, had I got to pick, I don't think I, looking back, would have picked it again. Uh, and how old are you? I'm 35 now. Okay. Yeah. And um, there's two parts of your story that I find uh, the most interesting and sure. that, that I want to get into. Um, one is the uh, obsessive thoughts uh, 
Yes. What do you, what is the, the... I have OTD. I have obsessive thoughts disorder. Okay. It started as OCD as a child and then it developed. I, I actually grew out of a lot of the uh, compulsion and uh, repeated pattern. Mm-hmm. And now it's just thoughts. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I wanted to talk about was the, the incident when you were 13, was uh, it? I was 13 years old, yeah. 13 year old, thir- you were 13 year old. Yeah. And, um, I don't know how how would you describe? Uh, yeah, she was she was nineteen, and uh, would the word be rape? I mean, I, I it's something I've never talked about publicly, and I think it's important, uh, and that's why I originally reached out to you to get the story out because, uh, and, and I guess we can get into it deeper over time, but. I do think there's a strange stigma towards uh, boys who have been sexually abused by women. And uh, I was, uh, I, I call it molested. I was molested uh, by a 19-year-old woman uh, when I was a child. And uh, I, I, I don't, I'm not very comfortable saying rape uh, because I, I do equate rape with feeling that your life is je- in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. I never felt that life, my life was in jeopardy. I kind of felt like my soul was in jeopardy at times, but I never felt threatened that I was going to get murdered or, or, or held down or anything like that. In so fact, I, you had a crush on her. I, I loved her. Uh, so, there, you know, it's even different. And, and I feel like maybe, you know, she obviously clearly took advantage of me, but it is hard for me to say rape because I, I do equate that to something else. But I, 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 I commonly say I was, I was molested. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Let's talk about the, uh, the OTD first. When sure. do you, when do you remember that first starting? Uh, I was, uh, oof, I was around 11 or nine, nine to somewhere in there. And, uh, I could not sleep. Uh, I was staying awake, uh, for most of the night as a child and my parents, uh, I was an only child, so I was very coddled. And uh, they felt terrible. They didn't know. I, they just wanted me to fall asleep. They just so badly wanted to help. And uh, my mom would stick around in the room, which now I think has faulted my life moving forward. But uh, How so? Um, I think that... Well, I, I went to therapy. So uh, immediately my, my parents had asked why I wasn't able to sleep. And I explained that um, when I was trying to sleep... I would see visions, um, repeated thoughts and visions. At the time, I also said voices, which is not true. But at 9 or 10, it sounds like voices. It's really just thoughts. And it would be uh, repeated visions of my grandparents' graves. They were not dead. They were not sick. They were young, actually. And I would just imagine what their graves would look like. Or I, And I couldn't stop the thoughts. They would repeatedly move and move and move. And they were always negative. Always negative. Dark. Always dark. And always mean. Always just mean to me. If it was a good day, you know, even those, those thoughts, if I could get the grave out of my head the thoughts then became you're going to be tired at school you're going to be tired at school you're going to fall asleep at school you're going to fail school and this just would happen over and over and over and and my mom would stick around and rather than maybe ask me and really delve into it at such a young age she hung around and i think that it became a security blanket of sorts to avoid those thoughts and and did it help you sleep that she oh, was there yeah sure yeah. i mean yeah i mean it would it, it's still terrible it'd still take an hour or two hours to to make it happen um but it was the, it was the it was the seeds of something that would define me mentally for years is there any lineage of genetic or generational anxiety and worrying in your yeah my mother uh my yes for sure across the board yeah i mean everyone uh from every uh my grandmothers on both sides and my mother and my father uh both uh my mother especially dealt still deals with obsessive thoughts uh or obsessive compulsive disorder Uh, as a child she checked locks she was doing a lot of patterns and then my father would deal with depression so between those two things i was hit sort of on both sides and uh I, not in I, it's like 
I, I, I manifested it in a different way than I think both of them did, or at least that they're willing to talk about, mm-hmm. which um, I just knew immediately that there was something wrong with my thoughts. And, and, and recently, this is a couple books have been written about it, and I've been able to read them and really connect, something I didn't understand until my late 20s, really. Mm-hmm. But, but Books that were helpful to you? Very helpful. Which can you uh, so, name them? Um, I'll, I'll give you the name at the end, so okay. I'll look it up, but I don't want to mess up the names. Um but one of them especially explained uh, that there's a, there was a, when HIV became a thing, when AIDS became a thing, it, the, there was a nationwide epidemic of obsessive thoughts disorder people allowing that to come in. And I also had that um, in college and late high school, um, especially after the molestation, I, I believed I had AIDS. So my mental state when these thoughts weren't going away and I was crying in college and these things that like shouldn't have been happening to a, a boy in a, at a university, these things I couldn't sleep even in college and um, just so badly, you know, trying to, to cling on to someone to be in the bedroom with me. Uh, when that's happening, I, I just, well, I have AIDS. I mean, that's how, that's how far it got for me is that I, and yet, I, and yet there was no, nothing that you could point to. Nothing. That said that you had it, you were just convinced because I'm doomed. Yeah, and I wouldn't tell my mother it was AIDS, but I told my mom there's something, and I'm young, there's something wrong with my brain. There's something wrong that I can't stop these thoughts. I, I, I And I knew it even at a younger age, um, and I just was like, I can't, I, I, because I, I had sleeve issues and small things, baseball stirrups, and, you know, uh, as a kid... My little league coach would say he's a young, a young Garvey. He's a which was a reference to Steve Garvey, who was a baseball player with OCD. terrible OCD. Uh, and so, you know, with, when dirt would be on my jersey, I would I would have to go clean it, or you know, things like that at a very young age. Um, or I didn't think I'd be good at baseball, or I thought my grandparents would die. So those would repeatedly come up, and I, I was able to stop the sleeves, which was a problem, the length of sleeves and stuff like that. I grew out of that, and that was very lucky. You know, very lucky to lose patterns and stuff like that, but the thoughts just never left. Give me um, uh, a, a physical paint, a physical picture of what it felt like in your body when something was getting under your skin that you needed to do something about, and what it would feel like when you would apply whatever, whatever I did, whatever you did to to ease it. What would your body feel like when? something wasn't right and needed uh, to be corrected so sleeves for example um i remember those very well so that was a big one because i didn't do lights or hand cleaning um those didn't I, I they're they're more irrational for me that was my experience and so if i had uh, one sleeve that was too long i would immediately feel uh i have to get a new shirt that's the immediate feeling not not anything else i just go well, i got to deal with this shirt uh i got to get a new one because i can't deal with this one and then it would, I'd go, okay, we'll put that away. And this is even at a young age. And then I'd go, yeah, but the shirt, I got to get a new shirt. Because this shirt's, it's, it's not going to, I'm going to mess up at school because I'm going to be thinking about the shirt. And, uh, and then I'd go, okay, well, I'll write down, I'll write down, get a new shirt. And I would do that even at 11 or 9. And then I'd go, am I going to lose this note? Because if I, <laughs> if, I, if I lose, if I lose the note, then I'm not going to remember the shirt sleeves. It, it, it would go over and over. And, uh, you know, I carry around notepads and those would have get a new shirt or, um, email this person and, and email this person doesn't sound crazy at all. You're supposed, I'm supposed to remember you, but the way that it spiraled for me 
would just be ineffective. It would be painful. And, and, and that was the problem is that I, I would know when a test was coming and I didn't study. That's a good obsession. That's a, that's one where I'm supposed to study and I didn't. But then there were ones where, you know, I bought the wrong CDRs. You know, I bought CDRWs, which was a thing in college. You had the rewritable CDs or the writable ones, and you were using them to, to, you know, burn CDs and mixtapes and stuff. And I spent $40 on the wrong CDs. And I couldn't return it because I'd opened it. And, you know, it became so much bigger and pain. And and I look back and I'm just sad. What did you you feel in your body when you realized you made the wrong purchase? Just absolute disappointment and and absolute pain. Would you like your stomach sink? Would your face feel flush? I would feel... Was it shaming? It would shame myself, but it was really about the obsession. It was more about the obsession than the CDs. It would just go... And I still have it. You know, I, I can't look at certain emails. Like today I got an email about work and I'm going to look at it tomorrow. I, I, I still have a feeling of don't open that box. Don't open that Pandora's box of thought. And and it, it has no reason. The CD one, I remember vividly. I remember it in college just just haunting me and sweating and um, not wanting to think about it, avoiding those thoughts about the CDs. And then I'd get a D on a test and that's a big deal. And I wouldn't feel it. That wouldn't hurt. I would just remember the CDs. What do you think that's about? You know, I think that this disease, I think that obsessive thoughts disorder doesn't weigh things. At least that's my experience. Other people might feel differently. But I have never felt reason with my disorder. I've never felt... um, I've stayed in relationships because of obsessive thoughts disorder where, you know, and, I, and I'm, I'm writing a book right now for uh, my rap career and it comes up in it a couple times. Clearly, it's a big deal for me. And the one thing that I, I notice now at 35 is I still have to brace for letdown. I still have to brace for breakups. I still have to brace for these things because I know I don't know what I'm going to pull out of it. You know, I don't look at social media after I break up with someone because even if I don't like this person, I will take one photo and I will think about it for 20 hours a day. And I, that is not an exaggeration. I will think about it for the entire time I'm awake. That sounds exhausting. And it's so tiring. And it is so mean to myself that there is a point that I, my friends feel, that the few friends that I've confided in just feel bad. It's like you're your own stalker. I am painfully my own stalker. And... um it's hard to explain to people because everyone stresses. And and especially in 2015, it's like everyone feels these pressures. And everyone ruminates. Everyone ruminates. But what they don't understand is it, that I can't, I can't function. So if there's something that I'm obsessing over, I can't readily be a human. How do you get so much done? You've had two rap careers. You opened an art yeah. gallery. You write for magazines. Because I'll find those few seconds. That's the sad part. Is that that I'll find those few minutes of openness and I'll do something with them because I, I, I know the other stuff hurts. You know what I mean? Like, I'll be like, okay, well, I'll get this in now and then I'll, I'll fit it in. I'll fit in the small things um, and those become bigger things. And I've been lucky. Uh, but but it, the obsession also has helped me in those things. You know, obsessing over one small detail of my writing career uh, will push me further. I don't wait to send an email. Those things, I know this sounds small, but they are obsessions that I have that have helped me and also hindered my 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 progress as a person. My success has r- rarely felt any real pains from obsession. It's mostly been emotional pain. 
I, I heard somebody say one time uh, about bipolar disorder. There's two kinds of uh, two kinds of bipolar: the kind that gets you promoted and the kind that gets you fired. Yeah, and and it's similar. And and I've I've been very lucky to avoid the second half. Um, most people who hear this, who are my friend, who will hear this podcast, will will uh, not know. You know, they'll know I'm I'm a, a worker. They'll know I'm obsessive about working, but they won't know that it lies so much deeper. And that that um, you know. And I've gotten better. I talk freely on my own podcast about running, which has saved my life. Um, I, I don't know how I would live without running because uh, it, it is... You run a lot. A you lot, run a lot. like eight miles a day. I run about six miles a day. I haven't because yeah. I broke my You're hand You're going to run eight tomorrow. Yeah, hopefully. I've run about uh, six miles a day for a long time until I recently broke my hand and had to take some time off. But um, it has saved my life. And I, I, I openly admit it. I've taken pills for these things. None of them have really connected. And running... Um, gives me freedom and and some time to uh to relax and it's it's beautiful and it uh it's the one thing i've connected with yeah sure. but i still have it every day i still obsess i still know what to avoid i still i'll still feel it no matter what i mean right now what do you need to avoid um i need to avoid rumination i i just need to avoid uh beating myself up I think that more than obsession. I'll never be able to completely stop the thoughts, but I will stop the context in which I think of them. So, uh, you know, right now uh, I'm managing an artist, uh, a rapper on, on Island Records, and there's a small hiccup. We've had a small hiccup, nothing big, but I could easily obsess over it. And, and I have at times. Um, but it's really about the way I, I just frame it, which is, okay, I'm going to obsess about it because it is a small hiccup and it's a small uh, speed bump. Uh, but if I just if I just focus hard on it not being a wall, just saying, okay, this is a small thing, I'm still going to obsess, but it becomes about a small bump, not an end. So it sounds like uh, bringing in prioritizing. Yeah, of the thoughts. Of the thoughts. Yeah. Um, I, I've heard people uh, with ADHD say that it's raining a million thoughts and they all weigh the same. Yeah, and I think, uh, like, my father died <laughs> of cancer, and I don't obsess over that. And that's a weird feeling for me, is that, you know, I obsessed over my father being unemployed uh, near his, you know, uh, four or five years before his death, he had been unemployed. And I obsessed over the idea that he was home alone, and he could just be a greeter. He could just greet at Blockbuster. He could just greet at Walmart. Though That he could just greet... It's such a small thing. It doesn't even resonate with me now. But at the time, it just meant everything for a good month. And I'm even sweating a little now thinking about it. It's, it's, I remember it being the most important thing to me. And at the time, I, was, I had a million-dollar record deal at Interscope Records. And no record I was recording meant anything like my father just getting a greeting job. And that, that, was, that was more important than your career to absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and I and I would think about it all the time, and I, and I think that, and then that goes away after a while, and then it becomes something else, and and it, it's, and it, it's never. What's your favorite one of, of uh, in terms of just thoughts. how ridiculous kind, it ridiculous is? it is in hindsight? Um, that one's pretty CDs great. Is, your 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 dad yeah, a greeter. being a greeter. CDR is a hard one because I remember that v so distinctly being a big thing in college when I should have been having the time of my life. And I remember being at a party and my girlfriend at the time, uh, I, I don't know how anyone dated me. I, I look back, I'm like, this is unbelievable. And I still people, every relationship I've ever been in, everyone has said, you're repeating yourself. 
every time i've never been in a relationship where someone hasn't told me you're repeating yourself and they've said it a lot and that and i don't <laughs> notice it i don't it's just that that's what my thoughts are doing right. so i have to vocalize the repeating uh and i don't now i see it and i try to stop it and i've been better but uh that's like a 34 year old revelation by the way that didn't happen years ago that happened really? like last year yeah uh i go everyone said that uh the cds i'm at a party a frat party and my girlfriend, we're all dancing or something. And my girlfriend goes, this is Julie, my friend Julie. Uh, you know her. You met her at the bookstore. I go, the bookstore? I bought these CDs. I don't have the receipt anymore. I'm at a party. I'm at a party. And I'm talking to this girl about not having a receipt to return before. I haven't even said hello to her. And and, and like, that's a rough one. Because I, I remember I remember even at that age, being retrospective enough to go, there's a, there's a problem here. Yeah. There's something wrong that I can't have a good time because i'm still thinking about these cds um also uh would have been great if she'd said i think one sleeves longer than yeah, the other yeah she goes you you have, take off that shirt you'd have gone into a spiral she's jumped off the cliff uh there's another one i uh had it for action figures most of my life i collected action figures and since a childhood and um i also had it for baseball cards so very child things about tears or bumps or you know small defects and action figures was a, a rough one and um uh, so in college i took some of those action figures to my school with me because I, I i get away i used to get away with a lot because college most guys are wearing like abercrombie and whatever i was like a little more edgy so like having action figures in my room wasn't as crazy sounding it was, as it sounded it's more I, seth rogan. ironic yeah it's more seth rogan than anything yeah. else not very nerd so um i was having sex i remember this very well it's having sex in college and at some point, the girl knocked the action figures over. And I was like, this is a real crossroads for me. Because uh, I could continue to have sex with this girl, or I could stop uh, and do what I have to do, which is I have to pick them up and I have to put them back. And so I, I picked them up and put them back. And, what and did she say? She was not happy. No. It was a girl I was seeing for a little. And uh, she was like, why did you do that? And I was like, um, I, I got to pick them up. And uh, that was it. I mean, I was I was not very communicative. I didn't know what the problem was. I just had to pick up the figures. Uh, I didn't know there was an issue, uh, but she knew there was an issue there. Yeah, I don't think we dated much longer. I think I'm not that that action figure thing was the ender, but I think I was in college. It was just ramping up. Yeah, to a point of of very deep stuff later. Yeah. What are What are some cringeworthy ones that you remember? That's a that I mean that's, that's a pretty that's a pretty that's great rough. one. Um car stuff is always hard it's not as hard for me now but growing up it would be hard if i you know even dented something i know that sounds like everyone has that but it's the amount of pain i had you know it's the amount of m most of my day feeling it um you know breakups are hard even when they're f my decision you know those are uh things that i have to really i have to brace for because i will i will beat myself up um, that one I think is pretty common. It is. Mm -hmm. I, and I, and I, I just know that I've allowed it to go too far for me. Like mm -hmm. I think at 35, I want to have children. I want to have a family. Uh, and I think that I've allowed it to, uh, cloud that. So I think, I think, yes, it's a common one, but I've allowed it to completely destroy my plans because those thoughts come up more than let's go find someone worth it. And I think, you know, I've recently been in stuff where, and recently in a relationship now where I feel like I go, well, this is what I want. I'm going to tell that person what I want all the time. And I know they want to deliver it. They might not be able to every time, but I'm not going to obsess over it. I'm just going to say it and I'm going to get my feelings out that I'm going to make a decision based on that. And that's so new for me. You know, before it would just be, you know, uh, I wouldn't even say anything. 
I may, may hint it, uh, but then for 80% of my day, I would think about it. And that's crazy. That's painful. It hurts. It, it, it sounds exhausting. It's so tiring. And I think that's repetitive. You know, that's, that's what I've told my mom who, who I've been very, um, once I've learned what it was and been diagnosed and stuff, I've been very open with her and it just won't stop. It won't, you know, I'll get clarity and then it'll come back in another form. Um, uh, what have I had? Is there anything that helps you as much as running? Or no. is that by far the, the, the best thing? Best thing. You know, as a, as a, as a younger dude in college and stuff, sex helped a ton and that's not healthy at all, but that would get me away and it would be sort of the version of my mother staying in the room. You know, I don't, I don't have to address the thoughts if someone else is there and I, I let it sort of, um mount and get so you bigger. wouldn't unless the action figure got knocked over you were able yeah, to lose yourself was, in, in, it was still in sex. Fine. yeah yeah i was still i mean i was young but it, but it was still would masturbation uh uh no but that can become you know that could i i've i that could become an obsessive thing but i've, I've never allowed it to which is lucky um i've always said because i've went to, to rooms before where i where i've thought of these things and i've always been lucky in my own mind to say well that's never become a problem for me but yeah. it, but then but then the cds are so yeah. there are there are things that i can't control them when you say rooms you mean support groups support groups yeah, yeah. i've been yeah. for for many of them uh just in order to get my thoughts out and hear that other people are facing similar-esque things mm. and um yeah masturbation seems to come up a lot in a lot of them and uh it's never been a real issue for me beyond healthy I, I, but i think i've allowed myself to think it's healthy like oh maybe i have that problem then i'll hear other people and go oh no no i don't have that like people that are masturbating even like when it hurts 50 60 times yeah i'm like yeah. well that is nowhere near i mean i'm I'm just i'm much healthier in that world than I what's I the most number of times you've masturbated in a day oh i think i've been safe enough to do two or you know nothing crazy yeah i don't yeah. think i've ever done more than two yeah i don't think I, that's and that was lucky for me i was like I, I like in a weird way i was like well that i easily could have let that become my baseball stirrups or my sleeves or something and it just never connected and like yeah. i said my dad's cancer didn't connect um i've just been i guess it that and that shows that it doesn't i feel like o, otd for me does not discriminate at all it can be anything the things that you think for sure will connect with me as obsessive just sometimes don't it's so interesting why yeah. it seems so random what it picks to give weight to yeah uh i worked for tops baseball cards one year and they sent me they were so nice to send me this garbage pail kids uncut series one uh it's like a, all the cards connected uncut wow and it that's was, oh it's worth like a thousand dollars they were so nice to send it to me it's, it's not like a remake it's from the 80s and they knew it would mean something to me so i got it framed and on the way to the framers just fucking just a small part of it bubbled the smallest part creased just the smallest part and and I still think about it. That's a six, <laughs> that's a six year old story, man. And I and I, I still think about the bubbling once a month, and that is a lot to think about of the smallest thing, and it doesn't hang up in my house. I don't know if that's connected, but I just I I remember those things, and and you know I've lost money in deals. I've you know I've done things that are much bigger than that crease, um. But that is what my OTD is connected with. I've noticed a lot of people, and I include myself in this group, um, that collect things. There is a um, losing yourself in it, obsessive quality to it, and a particular personality yeah. that you find, especially at conventions. Yeah. Like some of the rudest, most asocial people yeah. I have ever met are people that collect. Yeah. Well, I, I um, 
I've gotten rid of most of my obsessive compulsive disorder. I definitely have. I still, even if I, oh, there's something wrong with this, I'll feel it. I'll let it go. But I'll still feel it at the beginning. But I still have it for, um, I collect, <laughs> I'm the one person left collecting Blu-rays and DVDs. I'm literally the one person left. And uh, I cannot rent, I cannot loan one out. There is no nothing in my body that allows me to rent some loan someone one, and uh, I love that when so I, much. When I tell you it hurts, it physically hurts. It physically hurts. You're afraid they're going to scratch it. You're going to afraid they're not going to return gonna get it back or scratch it. Yeah, yeah. And in college, it was worse. There's a story, and I, I'm so sorry to him. And I, I wish I know we're Facebook friends. And I should send him a message. But my roommate, uh, freshman year, uh, I had brought out my PlayStation. Which at the time was not every college dorm had it. It was not as readily available as, as video games are now. It's a PlayStation One. And uh I brought it out from home and I just some reason wouldn't let him play. It's just so fucked up thinking about it now, but like I told him I didn't want him to play when I wasn't in the in the room, which is just not it's just not it sucks. That's a bad and that was the O T D, you know, that wasn't me. And I just was so nervous he was going to break something. So, I mean, I hear it now and I'm like, what was I doing? Like, I'm a, it's a bad roommate. It's a bad friend. It's a bad guy. You know what I mean? And, um, so I would, I would hide the PlayStation when I left the room. Oh, this is so sick to admit. And I'll, I'm going to send him a face. This is my favorite yeah. stuff to I'm gonna hear send on the podcast yeah. though. And I know that people listening feel the same way because everybody has That's those rough. moments from their life. Yeah. And it's so comforting yeah. to hear other people share moments that they're ashamed Oof. about and I'll, I'll send him a facebook message after this because I, I never it, have isn't it great that you're not that guy oh anymore, god thank god or that you're at least aware yeah. of the anxiety about the blu-ray stuff i still have yes. like I, I my maddie who i do the podcast with uh recently did call me out again and said you know this and this is you have a problem because i'm texting him about it and we we're grown men you know yeah. like don't worry about the blu-ray what is the name of your podcast again uh, it's called get up on this get up on yeah. this and it's on yeah. uh Oh, Earwolf, Wolf yeah. Pop Network. And uh, so, you know, it, it, the roommate and I, um, I hit it and uh, I left one day and I forgot something for school. So I came back and, I, and the door's locked. I'm like, that's weird. So I unlocked the door and him and another guy are in there and they jump away from each other. And I was like, oh my God. I, and literally my first thought is I just caught them hooking up, which is like not a big deal to me. I was going right. to be like, oh, I... My roommate's gay, and that's not a huge thing. And that's immediately what I thought. And I was like, are you guys hooking up? Like, in a, in a totally normal way. I was never going to make fun of them or anything, but that's what it looked like. And I look down, and I see the PlayStation out. And they're playing the PlayStation. And I lost it. I lost it. And we talked about... He had scratched one of the games before. It didn't stop it playing it, but I noticed the scratch. And I'm just so embarrassed admitting this. And we got in a fight. And... uh I punched him in the face and it's really the only time I've really punched someone in the face. Like it, there was really no reason. And, um, I was obsessive. I just was, a, I, I remember the scratched game being such a big thing. It didn't even affect the game, but I couldn't stop thinking about the scratch game, but I knew the way to maybe stop thinking about it is, well, he can't play the PlayStation anymore or I'll send it home. That's how far I'll just send the PlayStation home. Cause I, I can't face mm -hmm. that obsession. Uh, and then uh, we end up making up, but yeah, I mean, I punched. He cried. I punched him in the face. Wow. Yeah. Do you find yeah. comfort in order in in things that that give off a vibe of order, or are do things that have a vibe of chaos 
um, emotionally make you uneasy. Emotionally, I seem to gravitate towards chaos. Um, and in the the partners that you pick, partners, I, my my picking, and then also like my my father's my relationship with my father. He had cancer and depression and a lot of crazy things that sort of made us very dependent on each other. And I, I my mother and I had had a dependence for a while. She's gotten a lot better. Um, but yeah, I, I seem to be I, for a while. I was like, it comes to me, and now I'm just sort of like, well, that's not the truth. I find it so. But I, but order in life, uh, sure. I, I have so many businesses and things that I have going on. I think that I like to have them in order. But I also I can accept some chaos as long as it doesn't trigger uh, the one aspect of my life I don't have under control, which is which is my thoughts. I see. If I if I can if it doesn't trigger that, I'm I'm totally fine. It's just that some things will and some things won't. Do you want to talk about the uh, event? Yeah, and uh, it does tie in. It, it, you know, it's 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 very much um, it's very much related. And uh, a reason that I, I two reasons I want to get into it is one is that I had got I dated someone for a few months. Nothing important, but I dated someone for a few months who uh, took obsessive thoughts disorder as un- not important as something everyone goes through. And, I, and and you just, you can only say it's not the same so many times before you have to go like, no, I, if it was, if I was left to my own laurels, I would kill myself. Like, I can't think like this for the rest of my life. I have to, I have like, you're stressed about work. Do you think if you don't address it, you might kill yourself? <laughs> like, that's how I feel. Like I have to run or I won't be able to live with myself. And that's, and I, I you can only say that once. And then you're like, Oh, you don't get it. Um, and then with, with that in tow, um, oh, oh, I know that feeling that, you know, that's, and I, and I accept that someone might feel that way, but, but I'd like for them to hear how it's not the same. And, and, and similarly with my molestation, you hear a lot of people think that's cool or that the girl was very attractive. Oh, that's dope. High five. The joke about like, what did you hear his hand high-fiving his friends or something, you know, like that kind of uh, trope about, you know, when you hear about the teacher who, and then you see the picture and she's hot. And oh God, he was he snitching about or whatever, you know, like I wish, you know, and I'm a huge Howard Stern fan, but Howard Stern always laughs at these news stories, which is, um, you know, I wish my teacher would have, would have raped me, you know, that kind of thing that comes up over and over. They don't know what it actually is. And, and, and the, the repercussions and what happens for the rest of your life. And, and, you know, little, little Wayne, uh, I'm a big rap guy. It's what my podcast is mostly about. And Little Wayne and Chris Brown, both two people who have faced tremendous issues throughout their lives, both of them, uh, both also um, speak about uh, being molested at a young age by an older woman, a very attractive older woman. Um, and Chris Brown was young. He was like seven or yeah, something? Yeah, he was like nine, I think, or something. And then yeah. and then Wayne was around the same age as me. Uh, Wayne was uh, with a prostitute that was given to him by his father figure, and then Chris Brown by his mother's friend, I believe, or someone's friend. Um, and then recently, uh, the television show, um, uh, the trans, uh, transparent, mm-hmm. uh, the Duplass brother who's in that show, it's only been one season, but is dealing with it as well, uh, on the show. And oh. I, and I've related to it just so much watching him go to this woman and it was his mother's friend. Um, so it's coming up more in pop culture than it ever has. And, uh, I, I, I wanted to get into it because I just, I want to give it a small, uh, it needs a counter voice. joke. <laughs> I, yeah. don't, I want I want it to have a counter, not just the joke about how I wish that was me and why is he telling on this hot chick. I, I wanted another another part of it. Yeah, yeah. So where where do we begin with that? Um, I was uh, 
because of obsessive thoughts, one of the things that I took on at a younger age, I think, was was accelerating sexually. I think that it was something that I just uh, gravitated towards. Mm-hmm. I think that I, I just, you know, nothing uh, kissing. And I uh, I feel like even at a young age, I was, um, I was forced to kiss someone who was older than me. I, I was uh, my friend's sister. Um, I feel like she forced kissing onto me. And I don't know what it was that I was giving off, but older women seem to be always connecting with me um, more than people my age. And uh, when I was rapping, there was an instance where uh, a DJ that I was working with, a female DJ, very attractive girl, also gave me her phone number. And then we spoke on the phone a few times and she was clearly much older than me. Um, and, and we talked on the phone a couple of times and it gave me the like and you butterflies. Were, that's when you were 12? Y- yes. Yeah. Uh, even Yeah, a little, little before what ended up happening. And she gave me like the butterflies talking. I don't think anything went any further, but it was just like, I remember being flirted with and that was a, a very exciting feeling, um, but I didn't understand what it was. And so, um, you know, hand jobs and, and, you know, second base and these things were happening more for me than most of the people I was going to school with. And that's okay. It wasn't anything, but I, I was, I think I was allowing myself to be in those positions and that's fine. I was biggest flirt in sixth, you know, in eighth grade. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing is just, he hooked up a lot or something. And, uh, so I was a camper at a, at a, at a camp in the Valley. I grew up out, out here in LA. And, uh, I was always just best friends with the older, with the counselors. And, uh, 12 was, 12 was the oldest you could be as a camper. And I would go to like, you know, my best friend was a counselor who was in his twenties and he would take me to Dodger games and he would, we would hang out and we were just very close. And, uh, he would take me to like counselor parties and my mom trusted him very much. And for good mm-hmm. reason, he was a big molding as to why I didn't get into drugs and mm-hmm. very much a, a good influence on my life. And, um, but he was also very like f- free with me being flirted with at that age. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think he saw really a problem with it. And he probably thought it was cute, cute right. And funny. And, and like, even if I were to hook up, I think he wasn't, I think he thought it would be kissing. You know, I think he would yeah. be stoked if I made out with like a, a more older girl, you know. And so um, I was just old, old for my age. And one of the one of the girls at the camp who was around 18 or 19 uh, was just a beautiful girl and just developed and all these things that, that made a boy going through puberty very interested. Um, and so she was flirty with me as a count as a camper. And she was a lifeguard, which is a huge deal when you're a kid. Like, you know, she's it's, in a swimsuit. It's like, like a, its own level of its own level of heaven. craziness. Yeah. yeah. And so she was a, a lifeguard, but she would fill in for groups of campers when they when there was a sick counselor. So she would fill in as even it was always boy counselor or men counselors with boys and girls with girls. But she was a fill in. So she would find herself even helping guys out. And so she was a counselor in my group and became friends and et cetera and saw her at parties. And, um, we exchanged phone numbers. And again, we would talk on the phone and I would get the butterflies again, but it was nothing more than that. It was just sort of like, I felt like maybe I could make out with her. I'm 12 years old. And, um, so we, the camp year ends and, um, we keep in touch through pagers, which was, you know, the thing then. And she goes off to college it's her first year in college or second. I'm a little fuzzy over what year her college she was in, but she went away. And I, I don't remember what school she went to, but I, I remember she wore a San Antonio Spurs hat, which is like such a distinct team to wear. So I think she probably went to Texas or something. And so um, I 
don't think about her a lot. I remember uh, because she had breasts and things that it was a fantasy for me in the same way that watching like a salt and pepper video was like, it was just like, Oh yeah, her, you know? Mm. And, uh, so we kept in touch and we would talk and, and nothing seemed out of line. It's bad that I was talking to her. I should not have been at that age. She should not have been talking to me, but it was pretty innocent. And so, um, my friend lived in a guard gated community that, that, in the valley is so deep. Like even from the gate, it's 40 minutes. I've been there. You you were saying yeah, it was, it's, it was, it's so far. It's like, it's so, it's so isolated that my parents and his parents decided that when they were going out of town, I would house sit with, with my friend. And we were so young that it's like, we can't leave. You know what I mean? Like we had enough food in the house. We could have pizza delivered. That was something we were left money. Um, but we would, we, we couldn't go anywhere. So my parents went to Palm Springs. I think his family went on a real vacation to like Hawaii or something. And we stayed there for like four or five days. It was summer or it was not summer. It may have been, I, we could look it up. It's around, there was a break, some sort of break. Cause I remember a news story happened. Waco happened. Waco, mm-hmm. Texas happened. Uh, the Branch Davidian burned that weekend. And that's how I remember. Cause I remember watching the news there and we, we would just hang out and play video games. It was so fucking innocent. It was so, so she texts me during it. And so I call her back and we talk and she's like, I'm home for break, whatever break it was. And I go, uh, Oh, cool. And she goes, what are you doing? I said, well, we're house sitting, you know, and she goes, Oh, I should, should come hang out. I was like, yeah, you should come hang out. And now the butterflies are picking up and, you know, she's now 19 for sure, or turning 19. And so she drives over. And uh, I'm thinking, we'll kiss maybe? Maybe not, though. Maybe not. Maybe nothing. You know, just hang out and show, I'll have the butterflies and it'll mm-hmm. be flirting. The same way I feel when Red Shoe Diaries is on. That's what I think is going to happen. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think it's going to be anything. You think there's going to be a shitty movie when yeah, she's yeah. over? David Duchovny going to show up and narrate it. Uh, no, she. so she comes over. We go upstairs where, where my friend is. And... Uh, I, he's playing video games, playing NHL hockey. I remember it. And she sits and watches for a while. And then she goes, you want to go downstairs? I go, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, we're going to make out. I even tell my friend, we're probably going to kiss or something. So we go downstairs and we start making out in this like side guest room and it's fine. And I think, um, I start touching her boobs. It's like the second time I'd ever touched boobs. I think it's like the mm. second time and they're, they're, she's very matured and I'm like, Oh my God, this is, it's already feeling weird. And, but I'm like, okay, I have to do like, I, I'm a man or whatever. Like I'm just having the normal shit happen. And then she starts to touch my genitals or starts to touch my penis. And I'm like, Oh, this is very weird. And I'm, I'm sweating and I'm, I don't feel right. And then she takes her shirt off. And I was like, that's the first time that's ever happened. You know, like anything that's happened before that's been like at a movie theater where it's like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I remember at the time I thought that a a woman's vagina started closer to like the belly button. Like that's how far off I am from understanding anatomy or sexual interaction. And, um, so I'm still fine. I'm, this is feeling a little weird. And then she takes off her pants and I'm just sort of like, this is not good. This is not good. Now I know I'm, I'm in a bad place. And so she, proceeds to take off try to take off my pants to the belt i move a little away um i don't want those pants off at all I, and now i'm nervous and uh so she and she's so attractive and I, I, I she won best looking within the counselors that year or no i'm sorry she won best body within the counselors mm-hmm. that year like this is i should be thrilled in my i'm, I'm saying i should be thrilled this is the best case scenario in in your head at that point are you surprised by your reaction yes Yes. I, well, yes and no. Yes, because I'm finally going to do it or something. I'm so young. I still have that like super bad mentality. 
but then I know my body is saying this is the worst. Stop this. It seems like just an overwhelming amount of new stimuli. And I don't know where which way to go. I don't know whether to stop it or or at that point I don't know what to do. So I'm moving away from the pants thing. She's sort of whispering for to let me to, to have the pants off. And so I eventually allow her to take my pants off and now I'm naked and I, I don't have real pubic hair. I'm pr- a preteen. Um, I guess I've just turned 13 or, you know, I'm pretty new to 13. I'm a new teen and she, um, proceeds to touch me. Um, and I'm so nervous and she takes off her underwear and now we're both naked and I don't know what I'm doing. And she is now pushing me closer to, to entering her to, 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 to having sex and I'm pushing away and she's being calming. She's being very calming and loving. And I'm saying, no, I'm, I'm verbally saying, no, I don't want to do this. And she said, don't worry, you know, don't worry. It's fine. And I, it's not fine, you know, and then she's pushing closer and I'm very close and I'm saying no. And I'm, and I'm, fr- I'm frozen. I've become a bored. Um, like that's a literal metaphor. I've become a board. I'm I'm not moving. And so she pushes closer and now I'm I'm inside her and uh I don't move again. I never move again. I'm frozen. I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm I said no again and then I'm now I've now given up. I've now fully given up. And we have sex. She moves around a lot. I am just uh frightened. I I'm quiet i don't say a word she moves around positions wise which i remember very well is that she turned around and then pushed herself close I, i'm i haven't moved again and then i think she said at one time do you want me to ride you which i guess assume means that she'd get on top of me but at the time i don't know what she meant so mm-hmm. i don't say anything and then i don't know she's just she's just using this child at this point and i don't i didn't speak there's nothing happened and I can't ejaculate. I don't, I've never done that. I, I, don't, I haven't even had a wet dream or anything. So I, I don't climax or anything. I don't, re- I don't remember if she did. I don't remember anything from the point of, can you, can I ride you? I don't remember much else other than that. Everything has become just the pain of me saying, don't take the pants off. That's where I, that's where the details disappear. And then the rest, I remember her just pushing towards me and then me entering her and then not doing anything. Um, so that happens and I, I feel, um, I don't feel, uh, that the age or the molestation is the problem at that point on immediately putting our clothes on. It's that I am ashamed of having sex. I've let my parents down. Um, and now the obsessive trigger has hit. So the same feeling I had about my grandparents grave has now hit about having sex, the act, not that it's a problem. She did it. Not that she forced me. None of those things. It's that I've had sex and I did not wear a condom. So, uh, which I don't really understand. I just know that TLC told me I should do it and that <laughs> I haven't done that. And, um, so we put our clothes on. She, we walk to her car and I can tell I haven't said a word and I can tell there's a problem even amongst us now. She's not, she knows there's a problem. So she turns to me and she says, in just the least convincing way, in the most self-serving way, she says, uh, you know, with the other girls you've been with, which is like unbelievable that at 12, you know, 13, you think that you can say that 
and get away with it considering you just had sex with the most petrified young man ever and you know i haven't had sex um she says uh with other women make sure you know you wear a condom or you know you can't do that and i go okay and uh she got in her car and she we hugged she got in her car and she left and i fell in love with her because my obsessive thoughts is you know you got to fix this. You got to marry her or something. You know, you got mm-hmm. this, is, this is the person for the rest of your life you're going to be with. And so she leaves. That, you know, that's so amazing to me and so indicative of how the soul and the mind can separate in, yeah. in trauma. How yeah. the soul can be so wounded yeah. and yet the mind steps in and says, no, here, we got this thing over here that yeah. we're going to think about. And I wasn't a guy. I couldn't be a guy. I'm 12. I told him that we, that I kissed her and, uh, I couldn't tell him. I don't, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. So I go to go to sleep that night. What, 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 if you, what was the fear if you told your friend that you had had sex? I was just shame. Just pure shame. If he found out I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm so shamed. The thoughts are there. CDs, same shit. It's the same shit. Yeah. It's that I just, I can't face it. I don't want to face this. And so I try to sleep. And it's something that I had a problem with, obviously, with the grave sites. And I can't sleep at, at my friend's house. I just keep thinking about this sex. I'm ashamed I had sex. And so I, uh, I, I, in the middle of the night, in the dark, in a house I don't know, I go downstairs and I find a phone and I call the therapist. I call my parents first. I wake them up at their hotel because there's no cell phones. I had to call the hotel and it rings. Mm-hmm. Um, I wake them up. I'm bawling, crying. It's 3 a.m. or something. It's some crazy number that I couldn't sleep. They don't know what's wrong, but they know I'm going to therapy for obsessive thoughts and that maybe I just can't sleep at my friend's house. So they give the number to the therapist. Somehow the therapist calls me back. I don't know how this happened at this age, but I, I paged them. They probably the pagers were on then like vibrate. Oh, she wakes up, calls. Uh, I tell her it's an emergency. I can't sleep. I don't tell her why I don't want to over the phone. I said, I'll see you, but please help me right now. She talks me down. I'm able to go to sleep. I wake up the next day. I'm despondent because I am obsessively thinking, which is something I still run into at 35. I just, I'm despondent Mm. and I'm not working well. And eventually my parents come and pick me up. Um, and they know there's a problem. So they have to take me to the, to the therapist. I go to the therapist. I tell her I had sex. That's it. That's all I told her. That's all I ever told my mom. That's all I ever told my father. I just had sex. They don't Mm. know who they don't know how old, nothing, nothing. They both assumed it was this one girl. They thought it was a girl from my junior high who was uh, a sexually active girl that I was friends with. It just seemed like sort of the girl who's going to hook up first. You know, that just that's who they thought it was. Uh, and I didn't know there was a problem. I didn't know there was a problem beyond the shame. So I'm, I didn't even tell my therapist the problem. The therapist just thinks that I'm ashamed and obsessing over this thing. So um, they call in my parents. I tell my parents I'm crying just uncontrollably my parents are 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 you know they're disappointed um but my parents now say you know my mom and my dad before he passed said that i was punishing myself so bad that there was nothing they could do to hurt me more than like there was no need to ground me there was no need to they felt bad like my dad at one point because i'd locked myself in my room for three days um after the therapy session and i never left the room and uh, i would my parents would bring me dinner uh, they knew something was wrong, but they just, they, my dad didn't know. He said he wanted to come in at some point and be like, dude, it's fine. Like you had sex. What's the deal? Like, 
like even he was like i want to pull you off and sort of be like man it's gonna be fine like it's just sad like he wanted he wanted to break the fourth wall of parenting mm-hmm. and just be like it's a dude thing don't worry like he didn't know what the real problem was and i didn't know so um those days pass i obsess over it for a very long time and this is really where the obsessive mind went from the graves before sleeping to all day because i would think about this all day i worked at the camp the next summer for one reason <laughs> Cause she stopped returning my calls from the pages and I worked at the camp so that I would see her. So they put me in an area at the camp as a counselor in training at 13. Um, they put me in a, uh, 13. Yeah. 13. They put me in a area that faces the pool, which is my dream. It's the first day she showed up. They go, Oh yeah, you, you're going to be working here. I go great up facing the pool. So all day I'm, I'm climbing over this wall to see her. This is how, that's how far it went. And I just was waiting and, and I'm like, well, she's not here yet. She'll come late. And, uh, she never worked at the camp again. So I, and that's probably for the, a good reason. She probably made the right decision. And, um, so I, uh, I felt the pain again of not having this person I need to be in love with, um, in my life again. I need her in my life again. I need her in my life again. And, uh, I had to face that obsession over the summer. And, you know, I remember that one time a girl at my middle school came up to me and was like, you've had sex, right? Or you've had, I've heard you had sex. And I was like, what? And it's just one of those weird coincidences where someone says something and like, it's all on your mind. And I just, I went home. I called home and said, I'm not feeling well and blamed a stomach ache. And she just triggered the obsession. And I thought she knew I'm done. She, she knew. She didn't know it all. She made it up. It's just a dumb thing she said. Um, and I didn't know what the problem was. And so I went on and I, I acted sometimes, uh, probably more progressively sexual, uh, in the middle school because of it. Um, you know, I didn't really feel like I could connect with a whole lot of women because of it. And I felt like I was still in love. And then I worked at a swap meet. This is my first job. I sold pretzels and sodas and stuff. And, uh, I was working and I was near an entrance. I always had a booth near the entrance. You were 15? Yeah. 15 years old. And I didn't drive yet. My mother drove me. And, uh, I immediately knew something. I, I like felt her in the room and it's so weird because I didn't see her, but there was something where I was like, something's wrong. Cause I felt someone looking at me. I knew, I knew something was wrong. And I looked up and it was her. And this is years later. This is, you know, two or three years later. And uh, she looked the same. She's stunningly beautiful. And uh, I was in love again. And I had forgotten, not forgotten. I thought about it a lot, but like I'd forgotten the love. And just mm-hmm. seeing her, I was like, oh, that's my, that's my future wife. You know, I was just so messed up from it. And uh, she saw me and she walked over and I was frozen again. It was like sex again. I didn't know what to do. And she goes, you going to stay? You're going to come around and hug me. So I get out of my booth and I hug her and I smell her hair and I feel her breasts against me, which is still, you know, I'm not around a whole lot of large breasts (laughs) and uh, I'm just in love again. I remember smelling her hair. I remember that was a big deal for me. And I went back into my booth and we talked about college and she talked about driving. I remember was soon for me. She's like, you've grown up and da, da, da. And then she goes, we're about to say goodbye. And she goes, just one, one thing. She goes, I just, I really want to apologize. And I was like, wow. Well, she goes, I'm really, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not happy about how everything turned out, how everything went down. And I go, there's nothing, nothing to be worried about. I'm just so bad. I just hmm. so badly want her to love me. I go, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing, you know, don't worry about it. And she goes, okay, well, 
I just want you to remember that I'm sorry. And I go, okay, yeah, 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 that's fine. Don't worry. Uh, and then she goes back to her friends and I've, I've never seen her again. I've never heard from her. I've never seen her. Her name is too common to really Google. Mm-hmm. Uh, some come up, one, two or three come up from my area. Um, I could probably search further. I haven't. Um, I've run into her friends that give me the same feeling. Uh, like I remember counselors that were friends with her that I run into and I'm like, ah, and I feel it even at 35 years old. What do you feel? Um, now rage a little. I'm angry. I know she was clearly a victim herself that she pushed a pattern. Uh, and I'm upset. It's affected me, um, in my relationships and my obsessive thoughts. Uh, I've been both overly loving to people to, to replicate her. And then I've, I've replicated being her with people of age. Never, I've never felt anything towards a young person, but I have felt that I need to, um, I have felt that I need to have someone love me. And I feel like that has been, uh, because I was forced to love at a too young of an age and I was taken advantage of, uh, and she was probably taken advantage of herself and she needed to do that as well. I'm blessed and lucky to not feel that, that I need to do that. I've always known that it's a disgusting thing that happened to me. Um, I didn't understand what the problem was. Um, the real problem, not the shame of sex. I didn't understand that until my mid twenties where I finally sort of told someone that this person was 19. Um, and then I saw their reaction. What was their reaction? I mean, I, I was raped. That's what they would tell me immediately. I didn't have sex again. Um, from 12, I didn't have sex again until 18. And it was with my first girlfriend in college. And, uh, I, oh, I avoided it. That's another thing. I went to spring break in uh in cancun for senior year or graduation part whatever it was Mm -hmm. it was a a trip all the school went to and i met this girl who was like super hot and fun and great and exciting i'm 17 18 and uh she wanted to have sex and i just kept saying no and this girl was a normal human who allowed me Mm -hmm. to say no but that's not happening much on a senior trip to mexico you know it's Mm -hmm. just not happening every other friend of mine is trying to have sex i'm trying to avoid it and so when i finally fell in love with someone uh, in college or i had love for Mm -hmm. someone I, um, we had sex after avoiding it for a couple months and then I cried in front of her. She has no reason why. She doesn't know why. She has no idea why. During or after? After. She has no idea why I cried. <laughs> but I mean, I, 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 once in a while we'll talk on Facebook, she's married with kids and it's never come up. We've never talked about the idea. Um, but she was so loving. She just hugged me and like, uh, she was a little older. She was like a year older. Uh, she'd like been held back a grade or something or something. She started late. Mm-hmm. And she just, she was so sweet and loving about it. She never asked why I was crying. And I, and then after that, I got over it. You know, I, I didn't cry again. I just had normal sex, like my age and dating someone. And, uh, I didn't realize a problem until much later when I, when I vocalized it. And, uh, I told a friend, which turned into, because I was running into sexual, you know, I was running into sort of like oversexing. I was running into, um, like wanting to have sex for a long time. Like that was a thing too. Like I, like I was just trying to please. Like you wanted to make it go an hour. Yeah. Like I was like, but I was like, didn't know why I was just dealing with a lot of sexual confusion towards this tragic incident that happened to me. And I think I just didn't know how to relate to people with it. And, um, so I told a therapist at that time who then explained to me what it was. Um, what did your therapist say? 
Uh, that therapist told me it was rape. Um, therapists since have, have helped me understand that it's more of a molestation, but um, that that girl should pay for what she did, kind of. Like, like very much like, we. Sh- she never came back to the camp, but I'm worried that she did it to other people. That is a worry I have. I, I like to think she didn't. And also because she apologized to me, I think maybe she maybe addressed some of her own things is what I like to think. And she didn't work at the camp, which feels good. I told the camp... Also, I went back and told the camp they asked if I wanted to go through her records to find her parents' address and stuff, and I said no. Um, obviously, a statue of any limitations had ended. That's not my thing. It just I didn't. I don't. I don't need. I, I maybe I'm lying because I, I, I felt like I maybe I do need something, but I don't. I don't know what it is at this point. Um, I I feel like she apologized, and that was a, a big move for her. And also, did that help you? That she no, said not that? at the time. No, and it still hasn't really helped me a ton, but it's helped me to understand that maybe she hasn't done it to other people. I just want to, um, I, I, I want her to, to remind me what happened in a weird way. Like, I want her to say that she took advantage of me. I don't know if she would, um, but the sorry is probably as far as I'll ever get. Um, but I would like her to say, yeah, I, I molested you or something, which isn't going to really happen. Um, so I've, I've gotten better at accepting it. Uh, and also, this is something I held for years. <laughs> like, I didn't tell anyone till late, like in my 30s, really. I could have counted how many people I told on one hand, including my parents. Um, and then just over the last two years, I've just talked about it to friends and anyone I've dated, I've told. Uh, this is what happened, you know, and I've, I've cheated on people or things that I've done in my life that I've looked back at now and go, oh, yeah. Because I'm nervous to be with someone, I'm. I still fear a lot of things, and you I fear and I, intimacy. Um, no, because I do. I'm very intimate. It's that I fear the repercussions of intimacy. I do it anyway. I'm still. I, see. I still victimize myself in them, uh, and then I'll, and then sometimes I will be, I will be the girl sometimes, and I will find something to sabotage this sexual connection. That I have a real connection I have with someone for a sexual connection. So I've done both sides and, I, and I've been very confused. And um, so would it be safer to say that intimacy is fraught with landmines? It has landmines. landmines. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it has landmines. And, and, and those landmines involve obsession. They involve thinking about a lot or or, or what are some of the greatest hits of the, the obsessive thoughts when you're in um, a relationship? Uh, you know, I've, I have a bad picker. So I've been in relationships where they end in disaster, and yet I still want that 19-year-old to love me. Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter what they've done, I still just need them to love me, and uh, not in like a um, not in a narcissist not a narcissism way, like in a in a real damagey way, like in a in a way of being like, no, I, I need you to love me uh, because we need to make this work. And that, and that feels like 12 year old me, 13 year old me. It feels like me needing to run into her (laughs) and I haven't really listened to me as much as I've listened to others. And that's okay. That's not the worst thing in the world, but I know that this woman, which is what she was, I know that this woman planted a, um, an unhealthy relationship between sex and love for me, because mm-hmm. I, at such a young age, I couldn't disconnect those things. And, and, uh, and, and that's good too, to have emotions, but, but so much confusion at such a young age, um, created a lot of greatest hits and a lot of big misses. Um, you know, I remember in college after that, um, the year after I, I re lost my virginity or whatever. Let me ask yeah. you this one yeah, question yeah. before, before you yeah. go on that. 
is it difficult for you to equate sex with love? Not as much now. Uh, yes, for a very long time. Okay. I mean, I'm 35, so I've gotten better at certain things. But yeah. for a very long time, yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. Okay. I did not understand what it meant. I was trying to please the person a lot, or I was trying to just feel better. And that's not healthy. That's that's not nice to those people. And, you know, I was using... I was both sides. I was her and I was him. You know, yeah. I was both. Both the objectifier and, and the, the objective. Yeah, yeah, and the objectified. I, 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 I did both because of this one woman. Um, and I remember in college, I was dating an, an older girl again. I, I guess that was sort of not something that has come on since college, but, um, and I remember calling her and just telling her, hey, you should come over. You should come over. She's like, I can't. And I was like, and I just, I blew it up. I blew it up. I just was like, you gotta come over. You gotta come over. You gotta come. And I was asking the 19 year old, in my opinion, to just, to just come over. Don't, don't stay. You know, it wasn't even it wasn't even connected those don't relate to each other but i but those feelings were coming out a lot and depression and these things were coming out because of something i didn't even know what was the problem i didn't know that i was molested i didn't i just it was all coming out it was weird like ways. there was a subconscious hurt that you wanted to give soothe. myself yeah. yeah and and that was and that's what happened and and uh i've you know I, I over the years i've called some of those people to apologize and it's weird because they don't they don't care it's which is also strange for me because i'm what like what would you say to them if you were to apologize uh, i did a couple times you know I, I would call um some of them and i would say hey uh just want to let you know if i ever felt like i um had sex with you and didn't care or whatever i want you to understand like that was not necessarily the case and that i was sort of facing my own things and and then they'd be like oh don't you know it takes two people you know they, they were always mm -hmm. very and i never felt you know they never felt like it was taken advantage of i've never run into someone where i've brought that up and they've been like you're right that was real dick they'd be like you weren't cool like i you know I, whatever but like i'm married <laughs> like they they're all very happy uh i'm the person who's like still thinking these things out because of um something that i've only admitted happened in the last 10 years like i, I didn't before that i've never even faced it uh, and now this is the first time I've ever publicly talked about it. Um, so it's, I feel like I'm still developing in that way. Um, so I, I, I maybe give more weight to some of the things I've done and, and I've become a better person and still made mistakes. Um, but addressing it for what it was, is, it helps a lot. Well, I appreciate you sharing it and, um, giving a voice to uh, something that's so misunderstood and yeah. so sadly uh, not only marginalized but uh, turned into a, a punchline. And I'm fine with the punchline because I know it is one, especially because teachers get caught a lot. And I think a camp counselor is very similar, obviously. Um, especially if you were to like, see this girl. <laughs> like Everyone would be like, what are you... It's just that it's not... It's, it's funny for... Well, I'll let you have the punchline for sure. It's just that you have to understand that there is a very fragile uh, boy... It's not a man. It's a fragile boy that's involved in this story. And like, um, in no way is this like meninism or whatever. I'm not thinking of it that way. Like, I don't want people to think that like, I think it's, it's not just as bad in a weird way. Like, I understand that like, that's why I don't call it rape is that I don't, I wasn't physically threatened, but the emotional distress that came on someone who is just so young and, and I see 12 year olds now and 13 year olds and I'm like, it's heartbreaking. You're, this is tragic. Like, I, you know, I, I can't believe how young I was and, and, and how old she was and how developed she was and, and, and how I just wasn't there and wasn't, I froze. These things are all very debilitating thoughts for me. And, and I've gotten better to not obsess over these things. And, 
Um, but it's still emotionally, it ties into everything that we talked about in the first half, which is just that I still address thoughts. I still address, um, these things because that's sort of how it was set up for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you you coming on the show. And, yeah, and, and I want to get you those that. book names, so I'm going to get you them. Okay. So you can say them. I just got to look them up on my phone. But Okay, we'll pause right here while you look those up. All right, awesome. The two books that helped me uh, tremendously through Obsessive Thought, which I hope people hear this and like have some sort of connection with if they've... Because they know the difference. I know those yeah. people that have it are going, oh yeah, people say it, but it's not like mine. Um, the two books are 10% Happier by Dan Harris, mm-hmm. who... Um, dealt with it with addiction and stuff, which is a little different than how I dealt with it. Although I feel like I had some addictive things happen. Um, but it is someone who you can connect with, with just never stopping thinking. Uh, and he used uh, meditation as well now. So it's very, um, meditative meditation based. And then, uh, the man who couldn't stop thinking, uh, by David Adam, who, uh, has helped me a lot. Uh, that book, um, I think both were featured on NPR, so they got like kind of buzzy, but, um, both of them just finally, they're not, I can't connect with everything, but like hearing the thing about the AIDS thing, that's from the, that's from the David Adam book, things like that, where you're just like, oh my God, I, I have that. Or, or even just knowing that other people are having it and that you, when people tell you that they're also stressed and you go, I, but it's not the same. Like you think it in your head, there's finally a way, and I, hopefully this podcast will do the same for you, which is, it's not you're not alone. And also you you can't keep telling yourself that you're wrong for thinking it because everyone tells you they're stressed and to get over it. Like it's not something easily to get over. And, and, um, it's, it takes a lot of work yeah, and, and those books help me and shaming yourself for it is just throwing gas on the fire and I'll still do it even at 30, you know, even after this podcast, even after me trying to be inspirational to people, I, I will still do it. Um, and I'm open about it. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I've used Ativan in my life. That's helped me also. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't use it a lot running really kind of replaced it, but if I feel like a, a flare up coming on, I'll take an Ativan and sort of relax through that. And uh, I'm sure weed helps some people. It doesn't always help me, but those things um, are really the only four kind of the books and then mm-hmm. Ativan running. And then um, that's really all I've ever been able to seek refuge with. Well, dude, thank you so much for, yeah. uh, for coming on. And as I said, earlier i'm really uh, really glad that our paths crossed yeah me too and i again it's 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 a, it's a tragic incident from my my childhood that i i feel like i've gotten over a lot and now saying it out loud has really helped and hopefully it'll help someone else thanks buddy many many thanks to uh, to jensen i i uh, really enjoy talking to him before i take it out with some uh, surveys and uh, emails I want to remind you guys that there are a couple of different ways you can support the show. You can do it financially by going to the website mentalpod.com and making either a one-time PayPal donation or uh, becoming a monthly recurring donor, which means the world to me and helps keep the podcast running. Um, it's super simple to fill out, and you can do it for as little as 5 bucks a month. Um, so... You can also support us financially when you're going to buy something at Amazon, enter through the search portal on our homepage. It's on the right-hand side about halfway down, not to be confused with the search box uh, for the website itself. And by the way, if you're looking for an episode or a blog around a certain subject, um, put it in our website's search box, not to be confused with the Amazon search box. Um, There's a lot of people out there that email me and we'll say, yeah, I'm looking for an episode about depression or something. Just go ahead and type type depression. Um, or uh, uncle fingering. That one, you're going to get a lot of results. You type that one in there. Um, 
the Amazon search portal. Yeah, if you buy something at Amazon, they'll uh, they'll give us a couple of nickels and it doesn't cost you anything. And that helps uh, fund the show and keep it running. So I greatly appreciate that. You can also uh, support us non-financially by spreading the word through social media or going to iTunes and writing something nice and giving us a good rating. Uh, we could definitely use a, a, a bump in, in that. We've, we've slipped off the, uh, the front page of the top 200 podcasts lately, and uh, it, it helps get more people to the show when we're on that front page. So uh, get off your fucking lazy ass and go rate the show. That was a little harsh. No, it wasn't. You need schooling. I got to give you tough love. Sometimes you got to do that with your listeners. Occasionally it will, yes, it will ease into BDSM territory, but we will cross that bridge when we come on it. I don't know if I like that joke or not. Let's read some surveys. This is from the Shame and Secret survey, and I think it's probably self-explanatory why I wanted to read this one after the uh, interview with Jensen. This is filled out by a uh, woman who calls herself uh, Elizabeth, and she is straight. She's 19. She was raised in a stable and safe environment, uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. She writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Um, Being chased by a guy at camp uh, who was screaming, Uh, I'm going to fuck you so hard. I was 13. He was 17. The same guy said every morning at breakfast when he sneaked up on me that he had a dream about me the night before and he said I was fucking you damn hard and you loved it all the way. Loved it all the way in all the ways. Uh, He always stood so close that I could feel him breathing down my neck or when I turned around he stood there staring at me. I felt disgusted by myself. Um, By the way, that's definitely sexual abuse. Uh, another guy gave me a massage. I was sitting on a chair and he stood behind me. I had said yes because I'm always so tense. Only only shoulders and neck, uh, which it was at first. Then he started going lower and lower and more to the front uh, when he was up. Never really touching my bum or breast, but I felt disgusted. I hated myself for not saying no and walking away, but sitting there all passive. He kissed the top of my head and the side of my chin when he was done. Thanks for letting me do this. So happy I could help. You totally needed it. I felt even more disgusted by myself. To the question, have you ever been physically abused um, or or emotionally abused? Uh, She writes, not sure. Uh, My mother has always been the really loud one that got angry real fast and blamed everyone for everything, especially me. I was always the one who did wrong or didn't do enough. It got worse when I started getting depressed. Um, In parentheses, she puts didn't know it by then, though. And I couldn't get out of bed or get anything. um, Couldn't get out of bed or anything. Uh, My opinions and feelings were always wrong or weird or get it together. This was both my parents' opinions. I was always, quote, too sensitive and, quote, couldn't take a joke. Whenever I told my mother something that I just wanted her to know, she would practically run to our relatives and tell them. I always felt as if I was a freak and a weirdo. She would always take my baby brother's side. He's the smart one with good grades and is happy and nice and charming and everything else. I'm the fuck up, like the first pancake. I love that. I love that. I'm the fuck up. Like the first pancake, nobody wants it because you fucked it up. That is so, that is beautiful. That If that's not a bumper sticker, I don't know what is. I'm the fuck up 
like the first pancake. Nobody wants it. God, that's great. Uh, I would always have to ask her whenever I was doing something. Always ask permission. Even when I was 16, I had to ask for permission to walk the 15 meters to a friend's house on the street. And always the hug. Out of nowhere, my mother would decide that I needed a hug, which I said no to. Happened anyway. Only when almost, uh, only when almost screamed, no, she would back off, but then tell me that I have problems and it's just a hug. Uh, so nowadays I'm a perfectionist and can't handle anyone raising their voice. Not even a little. I cringe and almost start crying when a teacher is yelling at another student for talking in class. I'm also a huge self-critic and all the negative ones. Uh, hate every inch of myself and criticize everything I do myself or think. Any positive experiences with your abusers? My mother is, quote, so kind in between. Picks me up from school on her way home from work, drives me and her to a mall to do shopping and bakes all the time. So sweet. Darkest thoughts that I want to kill people. See what their families will do. Who will miss them? And if I'm good at hiding bodies, that I'm thinking more and more when I'm out with friends that I want to kill myself now. As in when we walk over a bridge, I think about jumping from it. Or when we walk over the road, I don't care about the red lights and just walk straight over the street. And then she... um, Oh, uh, Darkest Secrets. I've kind of bullied someone because she wore the same type of clothing that I wore uh, the day before her. Uh, Annoyed me because I kind of wanted to be alone and have my own style alone. I would look weirdly. I would look at her weirdly, make faces, and call her a wannabe. Uh, I know I was a piece of shit and still am. By the way, that might be the lightest dark secret that I've had in the four years of doing the podcast. So congratulations, and you are not a piece of shit. This is an email that I got uh, from a psychiatrist, and I wanted to read it for two reasons. One, I think it's an interesting question, and uh, two, I want to look like a big shot because a psychiatrist is asking my opinion on something. Uh, He calls himself Midwest Shrink, and he writes, I'm a psychiatrist with depression and loneliness, uh, which have worsened over the last three years due to several life changes, divorce and job move. I'm in therapy, but would love to find a support group, but I'm afraid of running into my patients. And my opinion is that that, I personally don't think that that would be a problem because I think it would humanize you in their eyes. One of the biggest fears I read on our survey about people's experiences in therapy is that they're afraid that their psychiatrist or their therapist can't relate to them or is going to think that their problems aren't that big of a deal. Um, and the other thought that I have is, you know, the support groups that I go to, there's a lot of mentoring that goes on in there. And you are often in the room with the person who you are mentoring and you're sharing about your anxiety, your fear, your depression, your inability to get out of bed, your not wanting to pick up the phone. Yet you are still able to have clarity on how to help uh, guide these people through their lives and advise them and support them. And I think it highlights what is really at the heart of a lot of issues is that the perspective that we can have on somebody else's life is usually much clearer than the perspective we can have on our own lives because we filter our lives through our own fears and our our, our anxieties and you know, that, that, that fear that we're going to lose something or we're not going to get something. And 
it's difficult for us to be objective about our own lives. And I don't think you, I, I just, I, I don't think it would be a problem. And if it was, you could either stop going to that support group where you bump into them, or you could drop that person as a client. Um, but make sure when you do it, you look them in the eye and tell them that they disgust you. Just to mix it up. Just to keep them on their toes. But anyway, thank you for that question. I think I think that's a great, uh, great question. And I'm a big fan of um, support groups, and I've heard great things about NAMI.org. Uh, I think that's um, they have a, a bunch of support groups on a variety of uh, issues, and that's NAMI.org. This is a struggle in a sentence. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Stardust Butterfly about her love addiction. She writes, if I'm not being loved by everyone, I need to try to change myself so that I can make everyone love me even a little bit. About her PTSD, she writes, the fear of remembering, but the stronger fear of never being able to remember. About being a sex crime victim, she writes, my vagina is all who I am. If you look at me and don't think about having sex with me, then my brain is telling me I'm doing something wrong while my heart is telling me I'm finally doing something right. About living with an abuser, she writes, I go to sleep every night hoping they won't sneak into my room and wake up every morning sad that they didn't try. That is heavy. Uh, About her anger issues, she writes, if you look at me wrong, I can think of 10 different ways I will hurt you in the future when you least expect it. Thank you for sharing those. That That was pretty deep. Uh... This is from Anne, and about her depression, she writes, uh, It's like the color fades all around me. I remember moments in gray, hopeless, can't get out of bed. The thought, I can't handle knowing I have to do X every day for my entire life, like taking a shower or calling my partner. I really related to that one. This is an email I got from uh, uh, Amy. And she just wanted to share a moment with me. She writes, "Um, I'm so grateful to you and your guests for being so candid and open when sharing. Uh, For the first time in months, I experienced a feeling of joy, an unexpected feeling of intense, explosive effervescence welled up within me and almost knocked me off my feet, not literally, but emotionally. I was standing at the train station waiting to start my journey home after a long day. As always, I was listening to something. Usually I listen to a podcast, but for whatever reason, I wanted to listen to music. On a side note, I used to listen to music all the time. Music was a part of who I was. It made me feel alive. But a few years ago, I started to realize music didn't do for me what it used to. I thought it was a part of growing older. Back to the train station. The Smiths, There is a Light That Never Goes Out came on. And something clicked. I listened to the words, which are kind of ridiculous, and I laughed, out loud, in public. For the first time that I can remember, I didn't care what people thought. I didn't think about how I looked grinning about how silly the song seemed. I haven't felt that free for so long. It felt so good. A few nights later, I told my husband about it and how I feel like I turned a corner that day. That that that. The dark dome that covers me is starting to crack and light is coming through. I used the word depression when talking about how I felt for the first time. I admitted I couldn't do it on my own and I'm looking at my options now. I don't think I could have done that a few months ago. Perhaps it's the change of the seasons. 
Perhaps it's setting, settling into a new routine. Perhaps it's just my brain's chemistry sorting itself out on its own. I don't know. But what I do know is that I'm looking for the cracks from the inside, trying to focus on the light and turn away from the dark. Also, I think Morrissey needs a hug. <laughs> I would agree. I would agree. Uh, this is from The Struggle in a Sentence, filled out by Marin, and about her PTSD, she writes, like I'm constantly doing this tightrope act of avoiding triggers and keeping everything under control so I can seem normal and no one will notice anything off about me. About being a sex crime victim, she writes, repulsed by being touched. I will do almost anything to avoid it. I think I would literally rather die than feel those boundaries violated again and live with the aftermath. And then a snapshot from her life. She writes, I'm in my late 30s and I have never once been to a single doctor in my whole adult life. I know it's not normal, but it's not super abnormal for sexual trauma survivors. I do not believe there is enough sensitivity to this kind of thing. The healthcare world... Uh, of this thing in the healthcare world and have heard enough horror stories from other survivors about not being cared for with much compassion to feel strongly that it's not worth the risk to me. I absolutely cannot deal with people touching me. It makes me feel violated and furious all over again, like I want to kill someone. When I think about a doctor or nurse touching me, I immediately start fantasizing about putting my fist right through their face. I would really rather just die younger and never see a doctor than go to an appointment and deal with the completely intolerable feelings or worse, risk hurting someone because I lost control. I avoid touch in social situations too. I can shake hands and hug friends, hello, goodbye, though I really have to brace myself for it. I don't like doing it and it can't last for more than a second or I want to run away. Uh, that is the limit to my tolerance for touch. I really hate people being in my personal space space, especially straight men. I start feeling angry and scared and queasy and want to run away or hurt them. I never act on my desire to hurt people, but I avoid any situation where I feel like it could come up. Well, thank you for sharing that, Marin. And I can't imagine how how hard and triggering that, that must be. Um, I wonder if, um, I don't know, maybe it's a crazy idea, but you know, I'm I'm feeling so much um, hope about the somatic therapy that I'm doing, and you know, the belief that trauma gets trapped in our body. Um, I'm wondering if you could find um, a therapist that you trust and feel safe around, if um, if that might help. Just a thought. This is an email I got from. Uh, how does she want to be referred to? Nina. And she writes, uh, Hi, Paul. I was thrilled to see the episode with John H. as I have nearly the exact same issues. Anxiety, social awkwardness, binge eating disorder. Um, I think you were spot on that binge eating is a way of managing anxiety and making your body come to the present moment. I've definitely found that to be true. The reason I'm writing is because I wanted to address something you guys had touched on, which was using masturbation as a way to feel better. John said that he never really fantasized about anything, and you seemed confused by that. You pointed out that fantasy is exactly where we can have things the way we want them. But as someone with severe and constant anxiety, I can tell you that anxiety can intrude as much into fantasy as into real life. I find that I master... I find that I masturbate often to feel better, and while sometimes I fantasize, most of the time I do not. 
because I can start fantasizing about a scenario, but the anxiety almost always turns it bad. For instance, I cannot imagine being with an intensely hot person because my anxiety intrudes and changes the image to that person judging me or being grossed out by me or whatever. That's why I usually just zone out without any particular fantasy during masturbation. Anxiety is, after all, essentially a fantasy anyway. It is a constant and uncontrollable fantasy of something going wrong. Uh, I may be clarifying something here that you have no interest in whatsoever, but I feel better now that I've clarified it for myself, so go fuck yourself. (laughs) Thank you for that, Nina. Uh, This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Bag of Dicks. Um, As we all know, the best way to package dicks. He About his depression, uh, he writes, like I can see the light at the end of the tunnel and it's New Jersey. About his anxiety, everyone is staring, planning, waiting for an opening to attack. About his uh, physical handicap, uh, he suffered a traumatic brain injury. He writes, my limp makes people think I'm looking for attention or sympathy when I just have to get somewhere and just want to be left alone. Excuse me. Um... And about having aphasia, he writes, nothing is as fun as having aphasia due to a traumatic brain injury. You can't remember or pronounce words, so everyone thinks you're retarded. Job interviews are a nightmare with aphasia. You're under pressure. You want to explain yourself eloquently, yet you either stare blankly or stammer all over your words. And afterward, you have to explain that you have aphasia from a traumatic brain injury and you're not actually retarded. Thank you for sharing that. This is the same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself compulsively complacent. And um, about her OCD, she writes, like my IBS episodes are punishment for not having the radio volume on at at an odd number. Uh, About being a sex crime victim, like bugs are crawling out of my veins and all over my body whenever someone touches me. I know they won't hurt me, but I still need to make it stop. Uh, snapshot from her life. Being told by friends for so long that I was just overreacting and he would never do that, that now I have to constantly remind myself that I'm not a liar by rereading threatening and abusive text messages from my ex, which only makes the pain fresh all over again, but at least I know I'm not crazy. Uh, this is the same survey filled out by Molly. And about her bulimia, she writes, I hope the laxatives work so I can feel empty, and I hope they don't so I can sleep through the night. About her love addiction, if he is nice to me, then I matter. Uh, About her OCD, each time I walk past the sink without washing my hands, it's a small victory. About being a sex crime victim, it only gets, I only get off when it hurts me. Um, Did I remember to clear my cash? He will think I am so fucked up if he knows what gets me off. About cutting, how am I going to hide the scars this summer? And then a snapshot from her life. My mother was hogtied by the police on the Florida pavement. All I could think is, doesn't she know her little girl is watching? Can't she go peacefully? Keep her hideous fucking mouth shut this once. Thank you, Molly. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Sequoia. And uh, she writes, uh, I took my first ever antidepressant. It's been 40 days now. I haven't had one panic attack. Prior to, I, it, it was at three per week. My life is completely different. Is this how normal people feel? 
Every day I wake up no longer filled with anxiety and doubt. Instead, I smile and kiss my sweet husband, snuggle my toddler who often makes his way into my bed at night. Now I can just breathe and relax, relax in my own body for what feels like the first time. I felt a stigma over meds for years. You and your guests have helped me overcome this. So tonight, laying in bed, sinking into my sheets, smelling the sweet smell of my dog's paws, I just feel relief and so happy. Thank you for sharing that. This is from Nicole, uh, and uh, this is her struggle in a sentence and about her uh, depression, She write, or her bipolar. She writes, it kills me to know that now that I'm medicated, I'll never be as happy as I was while manic. I got to agree with that one. I've experienced mania before, at least hypomania. And uh, even though you wind up doing jackass things, it feels so fucking good. You feel so alive, so ready to take on the day when you wake up in the morning. Uh, This is the same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Guilty Sans Pleasure. And about his depression, he writes, God's ironic foot on my chest, holding me in place, but never leaning hard enough to finally kill me. Boy, is that a good one. This is from the What Has Helped You survey. I've got some good ones uh, recently. Um, This is from a guy who calls himself Sonic Cat. I know he's filled out a bunch of surveys before. Um, And his issues are depression and generalized anxiety. And what helps him, he writes, I just bought a record player and some of my favorite albums on vinyl. Music has always been the one thing that is soothing to me. But in today's world with MP3s, I tend to put my music selection on shuffle uh, along with my life. What I've noticed since listening to records is that it slows my life down just enough so I can be comfortable. I can't easily jump around from artist to artist or from track to track, so it has taught me patience and living in the moment. There is no greater feeling than listening to an album like Iggy Pop and the Stooges' Funhouse from start to finish. Thank you for that. I'm going to say I'm pretty proud of the uh, taste in music our listeners uh, have. Um, This is the same survey filled up by Kathleen. Her issues are boredom, loneliness, and anger. And she's 16. Uh, years old and what has helped her i just fucking love this food hitting or breaking things and yelling i don't know that just made me smile this is uh same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself banana rama and her issues are uh, anxiety ptsd and agoraphobia And what helps her PTSD, she writes, Whenever I start having my flashback, my therapist taught me a technique that I found really works. I try and engage all of my senses by going in the bathroom, putting on a ridiculously cheesy song I know all the words to, and starting washing my hands in ice cold water while singing the words and dancing around like an idiot. It pulls me out of the flashback so the negative anxiety and unwanted thoughts will not follow and I'm able to keep myself from having a panic attack. Wow, that's fascinating. About her agoraphobia, she writes, I like to listen to aggressive punk music while I get ready in the morning. Riot girl bands especially get me in a mood where I can pretend in my head that I'm a badass punk rock goddess who doesn't care at all what other people think. When it's time to leave, I put on my headphones and continue to listen to the music. And of the panic I get thinking, and of the panic... I get thinking people are laughing about me or talking about me. I feel like a strong rebel girl who doesn't give a fuck. 
I think I read that right. To clarify, I don't dress or look like a punk rocker at all, and I'm actually the most introverted, socially anxious girl who could cry at the littlest thing. But when I have my headphones on and I'm wearing my combat boots, it helps me not care about what other people think. And by the way, if you've never seen the documentary Punk Rock Singer about uh, Kathleen Hanna, speaking of Riot Girl, it is an awesome, awesome uh, documentary, and she would be a dream guest. Um, this is the same survey, the What Has Helped You survey, filled out by uh, Sierra. She's 17, and uh, her issues, she writes, I'm basically the most anxious person in the universe. OCD, generalized anxiety, social phobia, PTSD, night terrors, oh, and depression. What has helped you? I've become a lot more honest about my challenges, and in a lot of ways, it has helped. My partner, friends, and even co-workers are fairly aware of what's going on for me. It really just helps them understand some weird behavior, like hitting myself in the head and tapping things that they wouldn't understand if I hadn't put it in the context of my OCD for them. It also has created a support network for me. Little things I do for myself are walking for at least half an hour every day, showering at night so as to wash the stress away, and writing everything out. That's great. You sound like a pretty mature person for for uh, 17 years old. God, my coping mechanisms were uh, smoke as much weed as humanly possible and drive drunk uh, while seeing double. This is... This is from the uh, my first day in therapy, and um, this is filled out by a guy who's uh, between 26 and 35, and what has worked, I'm just going to read part of the survey, uh, what has worked best for you in therapy? He writes, just recently, I accessed a center that is Latino-centric. Being able to speak Spanglish and, quote, keep it real has been very helpful. Also, at her second session, she asked if she was allowed to call me out if I was exhibiting too much attitude or inappropriate attitude. Basically, if she could check my bullshit as it happened. Um, Do you feel you can be completely honest with your therapist? Um, And he writes, yes. When she said that my job isn't to take care of her, her role is to help me while taking care of herself. That is awesome. And then, uh, is there anything you'd like to share with a group of new therapists? He writes, going into therapy, I was told by a couple of family members that it was only for failures. If the client has an immediate family or very close friends, aka adopted family, it wouldn't hurt to ask what views the family has on mental health treatment. That is a great suggestion because I would imagine that colors so much how people feel about being in therapy and that'd be a good hurdle to to overcome right out of the gate this is from the same survey uh, filled out by a woman who's between 50 and 64 and um to the question what were your initial impressions of your therapist she writes the the first therapist yawned during our first or second session she didn't just yawn she yawned and patted her mouth prettily and turned her head to the side turned me off therapy for the longest time. Therapists, take note. The other thing I I would add, too, is um, I think a lot of us who were raised in environments that were confusing or invalidating or where there was a lot of gaslighting, we wind up not necessarily listening to people's words as much as watching their body language. And um, I find that I 
look at my therapist's facial expressions quite a bit. And um, especially the first time I was in therapy. And I was constantly looking for any signs that, um, I don't know, that I was repulsive or um, weird or crazy. And uh, <laughs> the first psychiatrist I ever had, fortunately, I'd been in therapy long enough to not be offended by it. But while I was spilling about my guts about all the things I was thinking and feeling and how close to suicide I was, I swear to God, she rolled her eyes as she was making notes. Like, and I wasn't offended. I was actually, it was oddly comforting because I felt like, okay, uh, this isn't, uh, I'm not exaggerating that I need to, I need help. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Propane. He is uh, bisexual, he's in his 20s, and uh, he was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. Um, and to the question, have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? He writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, when I was 10, uh, a cousin who was seven years older uh, asked me to sit on his lap naked after a shower. He said he was going to help get me ready. Uh, I did, and he started rubbing and kissing on me. I've never really thought about it till recently when I saw the cousin at a funeral. The memories flooded in, and I compulsively think about it every day for the last six months and feel broken and utter shame. Yes, that was that was sexual uh, abuse. I'm, there's no two no two ways about that. Um, you ever been emotionally or physically abused? He writes, not sure. Um, Below the age of 13, whenever I was late for the school bus, my father would yell at me and say I would amount to nothing but a water boy or street merchant. Uh, was your dad from the 17th century? Uh, after seeing how much it would upset me, uh, he made it a recurring morning joke I didn't find funny. Don't be so sensitive, he said. After skipping school once, he beat me with a stick so hard I still get a twitch in my thigh and I remember how much it swelled. Uh, by the way, there, the, you had answered not sure if that either of these things were emotionally or physically abusive. Yeah, they're both fucking physically and emotionally abusive. Uh, my dad was in the army, so uh, punishment was the norm. He punched my brother when he accidentally kicked the soccer ball in my face. Uh, needless to say, I've never been close to my father, although uh, I longed for a loving relationship uh most time I felt like distant relatives that lived together. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Occasional family events, birthdays, wedding, family holidays. Darkest thoughts? I imagine my dad dying, sometimes by my hand, and not giving a shit. I imagine my mother cheated, and maybe I'm not his. Darkest secrets? I've stole money from relatives a lot to buy drugs to numb out. Thinking about buying some now. Oh, buddy, sending you a hug, hoping... Hoping you can ride that out. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Sleeping with an older man, similar to my father, just so I could feel fatherly love. Twisted, huh? Which makes me feel ashamed and pathetic, mentally fragmented. Buddy, I went through the same thing, especially when I confronted what, what happened to me as a kid. I had constant, constant fantasies of wanting to uh, have sex with a motherly figure. And... Um, I fortunately had been in therapy enough um, and been doing the show long enough to know that it was uh, normal 
and just a way of my brain trying to, to heal. And that's what your brain's trying to do. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to that I just want to die and start over? Uh, in parentheses, he writes, perfectionist and narcissistic parent with extremely high expectation. My grade never meant shit unless they were 90% and above. Um, what, if anything, do you wish for to not be constantly self-conscious, to be able to be happy without being high, not to feel so anxious entering a room and telling myself every negative thought they may or may not be thinking about me, doing my life's passion of writing and acting instead of working in finance? Um, which I think I do because I feel guilty for stealing as a teen. I never got caught. You need to forgive yourself, man. We all did shit that, that we beat ourselves up about, but um, let it go. Let it go. Let go of that shame. I know, easier said than done. Um, <laughs> so, coming from the guy who spent literally 45 minutes at his therapist today talking about shame he had from looking at a Playboy when he was 10 years old. <laughs> When I was 10 years old, I found this Playboy. I was riding my bike, and I was by myself, and all of a sudden I just ran over. I was in this parking lot of this warehouse in our in our hometown, and I was like, I think that was a naked woman. And I go back, and it was in, I think the, the Playboy was in a couple of pieces, and I, I, rem- I don't remember, I think I put it underneath my shirt, um, and I was like, I couldn't wait to go thumb through this thing but I you know I didn't want to be caught so I went I went out into the woods and and I don't know why but I just I pulled my pants down while I was looking at it and I'm just for it felt so good to just feel the breeze on my erect little penis looking at this playboy and um I still remember the picture of the woman I, I saw um years later uh, when Playboy was online, I stumbled across the picture. I still remember it was a it was a woman with she was dressed up like a baseball player, but obviously missing a lot of clothing. And I remember she had green sock baseball socks on and her like a shoulder on her bat or some or a bat on her shoulder. But I was talking about that in therapy today. How I think I went and maybe I told my mom that I had found it and. I think she reacted kind of negatively or I don't remember, but I just remember feeling dirty and feeling bad about it. So basically spent 45 minutes of therapy uh, (laughs) working through my shame of something that every 10-year-old boy probably does. Um, I think it's kind of funny too that that I kind of that it was it was almost like half masturbating like a kid at that age. If you don't know how to masturbate, you're just kind of just kind of standing there going, there should be something else, but I don't know what it is. Now I'm feeling shame for having shared that. Isn't life beautiful? Uh, getting back to his survey, have you shared these things with others? He writes, no, I don't think anyone would care and everyone would know how much of a sexual deviant, superficial bastard I truly am. Oh man, we are so hard on ourselves. And speaking of hard on ourselves, here is a survey that um, might, this guy might be the contender for uh, hardest person on himself. He, uh, he uh, calls himself Stop Thinking Yourself, Stop Thinking Yourself. 
He's straight. He's in his 30s. He was raised in a stable and safe environment. And he only filled out um, part of the survey. And uh, his deepest, darkest thoughts. Um, and I don't believe he uh, he experienced any um, sexual abuse or physical abuse. For some reason, that page isn't here. Um, darkest thoughts, he writes, I have an obsession with dating, sex, love, gender issues, and attractiveness. I'm not a lover sex addict in terms of behavior, but I really enjoy dating and I love women's bodies. Uh, I've always been tangled up thinking about girl stuff, but over the course of three years, it got worse and worse until I couldn't think about anything else. It got so bad that I refused to watch TV and avoided leaving my house because I'd see attractive women and be triggered. The worst part, my deepest, darkest thoughts, was my jealousy and resentment towards attractive people, promiscuous people, and women. It got to the point where I was jealous of people who had been molested or raped because they got to be promiscuous as a result of their trauma. What kind of fucking asshole am I? It's not like I don't know better. I'm educated and liberal. I'm a feminist, a humanist, and a seeker. I know that sexually traumatized people seek out sex to reenact their traumas or develop love and sex addictions to try to fill emotions emotional needs. I know that it's miserable, and I know how fucking horrible it must feel when a sexually compulsive person hears, I wish I had that problem. I know that, but I honestly would have given up every shred of happiness, stability, and humanity to know what it's like to be promiscuous. I've been in love, been loved deeply several times, but I didn't care about that. All I could think about was how I was missing out on something. What a callous fucking asshole. What kind of monster wishes he had been molested or born female or preferably both? I had to stop listening to the mental illness happy hour because most episodes triggered that jealousy. I'd start thinking women slash assholes slash victims get to be sexual and I don't. And the fucking shame came right with it. I've been recovering for a while now, and I don't have this particular jealousy anymore. I'm still ashamed of it, and I'm scared that anybody who reads this will be hurt, angry, and think I'm an asshole. But I think it needs to be said because I don't think I'm alone. There is a happy story that comes along with this confession. When I was in a group therapy program, I got the jealousy trigger when a woman was talking about her teenage daughter. The daughter had been molested and abused and was now acting out by fucking older men and stealing money from them. I was so fucking jealous. White male privilege and a safe middle-class upbringing went right out the window. I wanted to be a promiscuous teenage girl. I wanted that power. I wanted to be beautiful. I wanted to be wanted. Of course, the guilt and shame came with it. Fucking asshole. After the session, the therapist pulled me aside and asked me what was wrong. I waited until everyone else was out of earshot, and I told her what I was going through. She didn't flinch, didn't judge me, didn't even use, didn't even use tactful but infuriating language. She just listened and nodded. When I was done listing off all the uncomfortable feelings it brought, she just said, and don't forget arousal. And I knew immediately that she knew exactly what I was talking about and that I didn't need to feel ashamed. I felt heard. I said, yeah, Jesus, I was so caught up in it that I didn't even realize I was aroused by it. But you're right. And I realize now that I can't possibly be the only one who's aroused and jealous of the guests on the mental illness happy hour final confession the mom and the therapist in that story were hot and i wanted to fuck them both i still do and i'm sad i never will darkest secrets after all the deep dark thoughts you'd think i'd have some deep secrets 
I've had a good life, and I'm proud of all the things I've done, especially the love and sex. My pain isn't tied to things that actually happen. With depression, OCD, and introversion, I live in my head, and that's where all the awfulsome action is. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I just love women, their bodies, so much. I've got other kinkier fantasies, but they're pretty superfluous. Why would I need fantasies when the world is full of lips, tits, and hips? I want to be totally sex positive and just fucking own my lust and be proud of it. It's so difficult, though. Sharing all of this reminds me how conflicted I am. I'm, quote, just another guy who thinks with his dick or a douchebag who thinks that women are there for him to want. But at the same time, I know the way I treat women is respectful. And when I do have sex, it's always healthy, fun, and connected. And I can't ignore something a girl once said to me on a date after I had opened up about my obsession and inner conflict. She said, women will always have a special place in their hearts for men who love women. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And um, welcome to the Hall of Fame. Too hard on yourself. Uh, this is a correspondence that I connected these two people. Uh, I happened to get two emails within the same day around electroconvulsive therapy. Um which uh, I think in the old days used to be called electroshock therapy. And um, the first one was from a woman uh, named Elle. And she writes, "Uh, I'm reaching out because I'm a bipolar woman undergoing ECT. Uh, I just switched to bilateral ECT and I'm on my fifth session today. I feel so alone and scared. I was wondering if anyone has an ECT success story that they wouldn't mind sharing. And so then I emailed uh, the guy uh, whose name is Jay and asked him if he would be comfortable with me passing uh, their email addresses along to each other. And so he wrote her and said, uh, hi, so nice to meet you. First off, let me say, I'm sorry you're scared and a little confused. Uh, but I want to first and foremost applaud you for going through with ECT. I know that decision is not easy given a lot of poor information out there about what I feel is a life-saving treatment for me. When I go for a session of three to six, I usually almost always wake up with a slight headache that passes in an hour. The memory loss is quite real, but what memory you lose is offset by what you will clearly feel to be somewhat akin to a huge lifting of the mood. Then one second. Um, especially if you were suicidal before treatment, it is likely, highly likely you won't think or fixate about suicide or hopelessness as often as before. In fact, I find what mostly troubles me is other people who keep asking me whether I remember this or that. I understand from their point of view it may seem tragic that memory is lost, but I've learned to take the loss of memory as, as sometimes a good thing. Most of the time, certain events just come back to you. That's the strange part, and the brain is a weird, amazing organ. But please do trust your doctor. I am sure he would not recommend ECT if he was unsure whether it would help you. I've done it many times over the past 18 years, and I am now 38 years old. It is a life-saving tool for moments when I am horribly depressed and medication is just not working. All the cocktails of meds don't work, and we need to stop the bad roundabout thoughts in the fastest, most effective way possible. Don't want to say too much in case it's information overload. Just want you to know I'm sending love your way and that you will feel better. I find it the most helpful 
uh, trying not to force myself to remember things. In the days following the treatment, try going outside a little. Read a short book. You will notice immediately that your concentration has improved and that rumination about negative events will have subsided. After this treatment, just get lots of rest and do a little exercise to help with the endorphins. Just a little at a time. Maybe five to seven minutes of walking or running intensely. Maybe three times a day. I'm here if you need any more information or even support. My mom has had several ECT treatments for bipolar as well. Um, And my mom is great. She has not had an ECT treatment for over 40 years. And me, I have not had a depressive episode lasting more than two weeks since the last treatment in 2012. When things get very bad, me and my doctor will explore ECT. Feel free to contact me anytime. Even though the world is large and we are far apart, we are blessed with this technology where we can help fellow sufferers. Thank you. And then she wrote back and said that uh, she felt less alone, which as you know, I fucking love to hear. This is a happy moment uh, filled out by, uh, I know she's she's filled out stuff before. Uh, she calls herself Fuckface. And she is... Uh, uh, she she identifies as female but questioning, and uh, she's 16 years old, and um, she writes, I just came home from what might be the two queerest days of my life. Uh, I went with my school's GSA to True, True Colors, a super awesome LGBTQ conference in Connecticut. Um, Today, I was talking to someone that I had met and kind of buddied up with this morning. A woman approached us and said, Hey, do you see that boy over there in the black hoodie? That's my awesome transgender son. Said son approached us and the four of us shared shared an enthusiastic conversation about parenting LGBTQ kids. The son mentioned that he was trying on a fake penis. Uh, I assume not right there on the spot. Uh, I was amazed that he felt so okay talking about that kind of thing in front of his mom. She seemed like such a supportive, caring parent. For her, being queer was not just normal, but awesome. In other words, she gets it. It was so different than my dad, who gets all awkward and quiet when LGBTQ things come up. Although he supports me, he sees it as being almost some sort of tragedy, not as being a wonderful aspect of my life that I enjoy. I feel really glad for that trans boy. He has a really cool mother. And then her second happy moment, she writes, uh, During the closing ceremony, Ian Harvey, a trans uh, female to male stand-up comedian and actor from the show Transparent, did a hilarious act for us. I was very interested in the fact that before he had realized he was a trans guy, he identified as a butch lesbian. At least right now, um, at least right now, Um, I identify as a butch lesbian, but I've been questioning my gender identity. Sometimes I think I might be a trans guy, and I've been struggling a lot uh, with, uh, with this. I'm scared of what it could mean for my life and what it could mean for my identity as a queer person, and mostly whether or not I really am trans or just making mistaking signs. He announced that he'd be at the dance for a while, and I knew that I wanted to talk to him. Later at the dance, I spotted him and awkwardly went over to him. He went outside the ballroom to talk since the music was loud. I started crying, telling him about how I had related to his story and how I was struggling to figure out my gender identity and how I didn't feel gay enough because I still haven't dated a girl yet. Uh, I certainly don't feel trans enough since I'm so unsure about how I feel. He hugged me and gave me some awesome advice. I won't go over all of what he said, but the gist of what he said 
was that it's okay to question, and sometimes the insecurity of questioning and not knowing are the most beautiful parts of life. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you, fuckface. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself insert quippy nickname here. And she writes, I switched from tenor to bass trombone my freshman year of college. The entire year was an exercise in starting over. For the first time in my life, I was surrounded by all new people, having new experiences in a new and unfamiliar place. I really struggled with change, but decided that I was going to make the experience work for me. I got up every morning at 7 to practice, relishing the meditative calm of a completely empty practice building. I let myself experiment with the limits of my ability on my instrument, trying out different ways to use my lip muscles, different air speeds, different angles of the horn. Sometimes I made ridiculously horrible sounds. Sometimes I didn't. I kept what worked and learned to accept, not judge or dwell on, what didn't. By the end of the year, my efforts were beginning to show. I auditioned into the conservatory's top orchestra for the final concert of the year. We were playing Shostakovich V, which has all these great open intervals, perfect, perfect fourths, perfect fifths, and octaves in the brass section. After a year of struggling and feeling like I had nothing familiar to hold onto, I found myself in an outstanding brass section surrounded by clouds of tuba and trombone sounds with almost perfect intonation. The intonation was locking in so well that I could feel not only that I could feel not only hear where my part fit in. I was finally resonating with the world around me, finally completely where I belonged. The safety, giddiness, and sense of belonging that I found in that moment and those like it made all the struggling worth it. Even now, years later, I still find that comfort in music. Even in those moments when I'm my most emotionally cut off, I can still occasionally find comfort in resonating with those around me. Well, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. And on this this uh, day, our fourth anniversary of uh, starting the podcast, I, I just want to say I'm so grateful to you guys for supporting this show. And um, I'm sure you've all seen the movie uh, Willy Wonka, the first one. And I've always loved that movie. And for some reason, the, just the metaphor of getting to do this show, um, maybe it's analogy. I always forget what the analogy is and what a metaphor is. But um, my favorite moment in Willy Wonka is at the end when they're riding up in the elevator and um, and Charlie reaches into his pocket and he gives... Uh, Willie, the everlasting gobstopper. And Gene Wilder, as Willie, um, softens. And you realize that the whole time he's just been testing him to see how moral he is. And he tells him that he's giving him the factory. And getting to do this podcast, I feel like I've been given the factory. I feel like all this shit that I've been through in my life where I felt like such a fuck up or a bad person or doomed or cursed, I feel like it's all worth it now because I get this deep connection 
through this podcast, through reading your surveys, through getting your beautiful emails, getting to hug you at live events, um, getting updates on you getting the courage to go to therapy or try an antidepressant or cut somebody out of your life who's toxic. I get to, I get to, I get a front row seat for all that stuff. And if I'd given up, I, I wouldn't have gotten that. I wouldn't have gotten the factory. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't get to experience this. And, um, even on my worst days, and I've had some in the last 30 days, um, it still feels so comforting to sit in front of this microphone listening to Herbert snore and Ivy scratch. You know, even if I, I'm having trouble putting a sentence together and feeling like, oh my God, I'm going to lose listeners. This, you know, this episode's going to be boring. You know, they're going to be fast forwarding it. I still get that feeling when I sit down at the microphone that I get to do this. I get to do this. And um, if you guys didn't give me your feedback, if you didn't take the surveys, if you didn't donate to the show, um, all of that stuff, I wouldn't I wouldn't be doing this. So thank you. Thank you for helping me build this. And I hope if you've um, listened this far, uh, you know you're not alone. You know that there's hope if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and uh, and ask for help. And thank you so, so much for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.